lying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. A late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Debrief. I'm not in much of a cats and kittening kind of mood today, given the state of world events. But here we are. I know people have a lot of questions, as do I. I spent the whole day, it feels like. Not it feels like. Quite literally, I spent the whole day listening to content, reading articles, uh, reviewing how it's being covered. Um, And I have some really great guests with me tonight who are going to help me figure it all out. I think folks are still getting into the room. Most folks in the world are still calling virgins, as it were. So while we figure that out, I'm going to do what I often do and go ahead and play uh, some clips to help orient those of us who haven't listened to the podcast. I'm going to start uh, with the most recent clip posted to my YouTube channel. It will be an opportunity for us to ground ourselves in this discussion um, as soon as I pull it up, which for some reason I'm having a little bit of difficulty doing. So maybe I'll start with something I already got pulled up here. My internet's giving me a little bit of trouble, which is odd given the rates that I pay for very fast internet, given my profession relies on it. Um, But I'll go ahead and play it. This should work if I play it off the computer right here. Downloaded. Here we go. I feel like so much of this left argument is about you're an imperialist because there's a fundamental question here. The, the, the people who are like, don't do anything, anything, any American behavior is anti-imperialist are got, kind of getting laughed off the stage as absurd. But I think they're raising a really important question about what is our authority? OK, NATO mm-hmm. is NATO. Russia is Russia. Mm-hmm. There's a no man's land of people in between. And the problem is that we have these two superpowers basically deciding how to parcel up and exert control over the rest of the world that basically doesn't have nukes. And sorry, go ahead. Do you want to? No, I would just say, I mean, well, you also have the Ukrainians who are saying what they want and don't want. And I think that matters yeah, too. But these things are a mixed bag. And if you if you look at even America, okay, what does America want? Does America want Trump, because Trump was president for four years, now does America want Biden? Are we all supposed to be enthusiastic Biden bros because Biden's president? Are Biden's foreign policy whims ours? Are Trump's? Are Obama's? Are I don't. I don't. It's so. Yeah. Countries not, are diverse. People. I are think diverse. they are diverse. They are diverse. But I'm also not gonna. I don't think we should one hand, other hand this. Okay. Ukraine clearly does not want to be dominated by Russia. They don't want to be dominated by the West right. either. So let's say 100% Ukraine does not want to be, let's just concede that entirely. Mm -hmm. That still raises the question, on what authority does America, from a zillion miles away, play peacekeeper here? And it's not that, you know, I'm not even necessarily asserting that we shouldn't ever, because again, there's this World War II example that's always floating over our heads. We all Mm -hmm. kind of agree there's this platonic ideal (laughs) of a crisis that we should intervene in. 
I mean, not, not everyone would even agree with that. It's troublesome. And you're always going to get leftists who are upset as long as you don't have something more concrete as a rationale for why us. So right. we're having this conversation about what Ukrainian people want. When on some level to that conversation, it's, it's moot. I, I mean, I, that's, I don't mean to sound dismissive or like yeah. there shouldn't be diplomatic interventions and those kinds of things. But what is America's authority to come in here and say, oh, we're going to defend you from this bully other than we want to protect our own sphere of in- influence in a way that is ultimately, yes, imperialism? No? No, I, I think we can, we can and should have that conversation um, while at the same time recognizing, listen, we have treaty allies in this region who are very concerned about what is happening. We have Ukraine that is very concerned about what is happening and wants the United States to help them resist this. I, I think we could, you know, the one conversation I don't think both important, but shouldn't happen to the exclusion of the other. All right. So that was obviously my attempt to engage in a kind of philosophical conversation that sidesteps some of the granularity in the history of the region and these kind of disputed takes that are coming from various factions, even various factions on the left, about who started it first, basically. And I'm so glad to have with me someone who's done a more granular deep dive than I could ever imagine doing. If you're not already listening to her podcast, The Congressional Dish, you absolutely should be. I just listened to her episode on the Ukraine from December uh, of last year. That is so prescient uh, as to be uh, shocking and and got me uh, flaclumped here. Jen Briney, (laughs) welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excellent word. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it is – you do – for people who don't know, you put out these episodes that are lengthy and meticulously researched, and you publish all of your citations, which is something that is very rare in the world of podcasting, correct? I think so, yeah. <laughs> so the, the information, it feels like, you know, it was an hour and 45-minute episode or so. It took me like three hours to listen to it because I'm stopping and I'm taking notes <laughs> and I'm trying to genuinely understand, and it's, it's a lot of information. So let me just ask you about this fundamental question because it seems like ultimately the different people, the different sides of this equation are rooting for the quote unquote team that they're rooting for because of a perception that Ukrainians have been able to exert a certain degree of self-determination and do not want, you know, Russian interference or do not want NATO interference, the West's interference. And um, in the history that you lay out on your show and which some people here I'm sure are very aware of and if you are a big brain foreign policy expert, I apologize again for being so dumb and basic. There are many other streams, <laughs> very many other sophisticated people that I'm sure you can you can go and listen to right now. But Jen, help us as mere mortals who are not dude who don't have foreign policy expertise understand why that question of who wants what in the region is a little more complicated than factions sometimes represent. Well, I mean, I just get annoyed in general when Americans are saying what Ukrainians want. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like so few of us are well-traveled or know any Ukrainians. So just like the conversation being had of being like, well, this is what the Ukrainians actually desire. Like I just walk away from the conversation as soon as that is said, because I just know I'm not talking to someone who is serious. Um, It's a very rare time that I'm talking to someone who's even been to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So I just think that as I'm watching 
all of the conversation about it's it's also kind of strange for me because I've been paying attention to this since 2014 on a very close level and so now people are you know Twitter screaming <laughs> at me having lots of emotions telling me I'm an idiot and I was just like I know I know more than you about this and so I think a lot of these conversations are not rational I think they are emotional I think they are tribal and at the when I look at it like there's just certain people I'm willing to engage in conversation with and certain people that I'm not in times like this. If it's pure emotion, I just can't. Well, well, tell me specifically what, why are people screaming at you? Because I've had people tell me today that I am being paid by the state department and also that I'm Putin's puppet. So it's very, <laughs> it's very unclear. So I'm getting the Putin's puppet a lot. And I think it's because people are confusing um, explanation with endorsement, right? You know, so it's like, I can say like, this is Putin's point of view and the episode I'm working on for my episode, uh, this weekend. Oh boy, do I have it coming? Because I think it's important to, instead of saying like, you know, Putin is evil or Putin is thinking this, like Putin actually spoke to the world for an hour, a few days ago and told us exactly what he wanted. And I feel like we should take the man at his word. And as I'm looking at not only, I mean, I'm in Portugal right now, so people listening should know that. So I'm watching all of this from the European news broadcasts, but I'm also on Twitter. So I'm seeing some of what's going on in the US and I'm seeing the same sound bites, all of them under a minute over and over again. But he spoke to us for an hour and there's a lot of really interesting things that he said there that I think can give us a lot of clarity. And I think that hearing out your adversary, even if you completely disagree with what he's done, which I, I must say I do, there was no actual direct threat to Russia that justifies anything that's happening. So you can simultaneously be against what he's doing and listen to why he's doing it directly and not be a puppet and so I think, especially as someone who is trying to look for the nuances in these situations and really do it from the perspective of, I can only control what my country does. And even then, I mean, we know how little control right. us peasants actually have. But I always look at it from, here's the country I'm a citizen of. What is my country's role in this? How can I possibly affect the outcome, even if it's you know, my small role of I wrote to my representatives, like that's the only action I can take. And therefore I want to be informed about this. And so it sounds like I'm blaming my country and taking Putin's side. If you think that looking at his side is endorsement. So okay, that's so Jen, my analysis of it. <laughs> I'm going to come back to you in a second um, and ask you more specifically about what Putin actually said and what you have gleaned about what the actual motivations here are with a bit more of a historical context than he showed up yesterday and he's mad and he's Putin. I also want to introduce though Bryce Green who wrote an article that a lot of people were sharing today written both in FAIR and also I think the Black Agenda Report uh, called What You Should Really Know About Ukraine which I think was a really good summary of the um, LOL, the Putin puppet position LOL. I'm obviously joking. Uh, <laughs> but the, you know, the position of people who are trying to explain that this is not the kind of random extemporaneous attack that it is being framed as being in the Western media and that there were, it was a kind of ratcheting of events driven by NATO expansion. That was the impetus for much of this. So welcome to the show, Bryce. And I don't mean to mischaracterize your article. I'm just trying to sum up here. No, I mean, I think that's a, that's a pretty decent, uh, 
assessment of what I wrote. Uh, I, I wrote it because I was watching all this media coverage about uh, all these like Ukraine explained articles, and you know they would omit very important things about uh, what happened in Ukraine. One of the most important things was the United States' role in the 2014 overthrow of Viktor Yanukovych. Yeah. So, Bryce, we're going to come to you in a second. This is an embarrassment of riches. This panel tonight is fabulous because we now have on the panel, in the chat, Stephen Similar, no stranger to those of you who listen to Bad Faith Podcast. Uh, he's been on the show, I think, twice before. Um, uh, from, of the Security Policy Reform Institute, last time or second to last time you were on, we had this kind of philosophical conversation about similar topics following the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Stephen, welcome back to the show. You're going to have to unmute yourself using the little mic in the bottom right-hand corner uh, to speak. I just gave you a thumbs up, too. Uh, <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> Thanks for Thank having you. me. Appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. Okay. So perhaps the best thing to do, Bryce, I want to ask you first, because a lot of people who are upset that I interviewed Matt Duss uh, and were upset with the content of that interview referenced your article. And I want to I want to ask you what you made of that interview, in particular, um, Matt Duss, Bernie's foreign policy advisor's approach to this issue. Right. So I, I think his approach for the most part was level headed. It's certainly, you know leagues better than uh, what the like the foreign policy blob comes to uh, the, the conclusions that they come to but again i think he left out or I, the conversation left out one of the key things uh, is that the u.s pushed this to happen they pushed uh they pushed russia into this position uh, namely by trying to wrest ukraine out of the sphere of influence of russia you know, there's a there was a political cartoon going around. It showed a like Uncle Sam drawing circles all around a, a big map, saying spheres of influence. And then right next to him was Russia. Uh, I think I think it was an actual bear uh, drawing a just a circle around Russia. And Uncle Sam's like, "What do you think you're doing?" Um, and that that seems to be what the main what what the main issue is here. Uh, the United States has expanded NATO for like decades, which is what you guys talked about. Uh, but it didn't seem like he understood the active role the United, the United States had in pushing us toward the situation. Uh, a lot of the conversation mm -hmm. dealt with... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. You can no, go ahead. Please finish. No, I was going to say a lot of the conversation dealt with, uh, well, what do we do now? Uh, how can we you know, reduce the, the most amount of suffering? And, and that is a very important question. But if you leave out the fact that the U.S. has already played a major role in bringing about this suffering, then I think you're going to have like a sort of wonky view of things. What's interesting from my perspective as someone who's very much doing kind of remedial study on this is that it feels like the conversation about kind of responsibility and culpability being broadly shared or at least not exclusively the province of Putin is really collapsed with a conversation about kind of moral merit in a way that makes it very difficult to have any kind of conversation. And I, I don't know, does that, does that feel, <laughs> is that, is that uh, how you guys are also feeling? Yes. <laughs> yeah, a, a bit. There was a, a good article in um, Responsible Statecraft about how what Putin is doing and the justifications he's presenting for doing it is 
almost exactly what the United States did in Kosovo. You know, we supported, you know, a breakaway republic. We claimed that there were atrocities going on. And then we started bombing people. And, and then we supported the independence of Kosovo. Um, and it was based on what, what's called the responsibility to protect that uh, any state can do unilateral military action so long as it's they justify it by saying that there was uh, some some group in peril or some group in trouble. Uh, it shouldn't really be taken seriously in the context of international law. It shouldn't have been then, and it shouldn't now. But we set the table. We set up this principle. And mm-hmm. you lie in the bed the way you make it. So, so Bryce or Jin or, or Stephen, whomever feels most able, I know this is like a difficult question to not spend 30 minutes answering, <laughs> but can you take us back to at least 2014 and start to set the stage for how this happened? Because the narrative that the mainstream kind of narrative is that Russia annexed Crimea, that was the initial invasion, this is you know, been simmering ever since. We have sent, what, two point, what did you say it was, Jen? $2.4 in aid over the course of that time uh, and military aid and support on, quote-unquote, our side of this civil war that's been brewing ever since. And that this is just an, an escalation of that. And that, you know, this is kind of a random, rabid dog-style atta- senseless attack from Russia, who wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union. Can you put a little color on that for us, Jen? Well, I think what a lot of people are missing, like Bryce said, and by the way, Bryce, your article is excellent. I told you this privately, and I want to make sure everybody knows that. Um, So in 2014, well, let's start in 2013, because that's when this really started. Viktor Yanukovych was in the process of signing a trade agreement with the European Union. And one week before it was supposed to be signed, he pulled out of that deal because had he signed the deal with the um, with the European Union, he was going to get money that he desperately needed, about $15 billion from the International Monetary Fund, which wanted him to change his economic laws in a way that would have been really painful for the citizens. And instead of taking that deal at the very last minute, he pulled out and partnered with Russia after a lot of pressure on Russia's part. Um, for $15 billion, a deal on gas, and no, you know, change your laws to match our, you know, whatever we want strings. So I don't want to skip over that because I really love how you put everything into this broader IMF um, context, Jen, in in many of your episodes. So you you talk about what you call the world trade system, and that a lot of these conflicts emerge from a desire for the West to include everybody in its own world trade, basically to embrace capitalism. Yeah. And that the trade-off is the IMF says, basically, here you go, all these poor countries, have some money, and as a consequence, you know, but in exchange, you have to deregulate in a way that it makes it, uh, um, that, does, that takes limits away from people to accumulate, corporations to accumulate all of these profits, uh, to cut back on social safety net, and all of these other kind of what we were perceive as progressives to be regressive programs. Precisely. I mean, basically what the IMF is demanding is that the market be free to operate as it pleases in the country. Anything that can be privatized should be privatized. And any subsidies that the people are getting should be taken away so that they have to buy those services in the private sector. I mean, it really is. It's freeing the market in these countries. And when you look at the entire big picture of what's happening on a global scale, the, this is why I don't refer to capitalism. I don't do the ism thing. 
there are actual rules on actual paper and organizations that are in charge of this. And they intended for the system that is being administered by the World Trade Organization to be the global system. When they talk about the world order and, you know, the rules-based international order, that is what they are referring to. It's a global economic system that they're trying to implement. And the reason that Russia and China are the big two baddies in the world, according to these people, is that they're not adhering to the rules that the World Trade Organization is demanding. They're not assimilating and changing their economic laws to match this system. And so, you know, NATO is actually a smaller piece of that big game. That's the reason why Russia, one of the things that Putin said in his speech that I found fascinating, he said when he talked to Bill Clinton back in the 1990s, he asked, can Russia be a part of NATO? And he was told no. And so that's kind of what's telling me that this is actually a battle of economic systems. And you can see the world cracking apart upon those lines right now with Russia, China, Venezuela, Syria, Belarus, Nicaragua. They're all on one side and the world trade system adhering countries are on the other. Mm. And so as I'm watching all of this play out right now, that's the frame that I'm really looking at it from. Um, Okay, so so I under... I interrupted you. Let's let's go back to 2014. And right before, um, so, sorry, Ukraine has made the decision to not join the world trade system, not 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 do NATO, not do the EU, and instead do Russia. Yes. So they decide to do Russia, which the people apparently. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm not Ukrainian, but by everything I've read about Ukraine, there is a dividing line. In Ukraine, it seems like those in the West, there is a large contingent of people there that do want to assimilate to the world trade system and be a part of Europe. And there's a lot of people in the East that are next door neighbors with Russia that do not. So there were some people that were happy about this move. But in the subsequent months, almost immediately, um, there was a coup that was put in motion. And there is very, very strong evidence that the United States was central to the replacement of that government. There was a phone call that was leaked. We know that it was legit because the State Department confirmed it, but it was between the then ambassador to the um, to Ukraine, his name was Jeffrey Pyatt, and Victoria Nuland. And she, oh man, she was the, I can't remember her exact title, but she was in the State Department and the The phone call was essentially the two of them planning who would be in the new government. And it was leaked three weeks before the coup. And after the coup happened, the person that they picked, Arseny Yatsenyuk, was in fact the prime minister. So we see that happen. In that phone call, she mentions how Joe Biden, who at at that point was the vice president, Joe Biden was going to go to the UN, get the deets to stick. So he was all up in this. Um... And then after the coup happened, Arseniy Yatsenyuk, the guy that they picked, signed the trade agreement with Europe. Congress immediately passed a bill into law that started funneling money and weapons to Ukraine, which is how all of this ended up on my radar, because I was just reading laws. And I was like, oh, what happened in Ukraine? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it just opened my eyes to this giant rabbit hole. Um, Yeah, so that happened in 2014. And so ever since then... We've been trying to maintain 
that regime change. And there are so many events that are connected to this that seem disconnected until you understand what happened in 2014. I mean, I, we, well, the Democrats impeached Trump because he was suggesting that he take away weapons from Ukraine. And they were also looking into Joe Biden. He wanted to look into dirt on Joe Biden in Ukraine. Like, just imagine the rabbit hole that that would have opened if it was actually successful. They impeached the man. So this Ukraine thing has been going on for a long time. And the dividing line started in 2014. Another thing I want to mention is that right after that happened. So, yeah, the coup happened first. Russia took Crimea second because Crimea is the home of their Black Sea fleet. They weren't about to let the new coup government have control of their Black Sea fleet. So they took that property quite quickly. And ever since then, since 2014, we have been building, this isn't a NATO thing, this is a US US thing. We call it the European Deterrence Initiative. It's in Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. We have been building up a troop presence there. We have spent I looked it up today, I can't remember the exact figure, but well over $20 billion Mm. building up our military there right on Russia's border. So, and this, like I said, like, it all started in 2014. And then the Hillary Clinton, you know, mess of an election in 2016 and Russia becomes the big enemy. Like, that wasn't when that started. It started two years prior. Mm. Okay, so this this is interesting because, so I've been talking to people who are broadly on the left, but who have a different relationship to this area. And one person I've been talking to is basically like, you know, is it, is it a coup? Is it, you know, there was, there was genuine uprising and America was meddling, but it's not clear to him. He's someone who lived in the region and had some, has, you know, a significant level of expertise that it, that it was not also in addition to being boosted by the uh, uh, America genuine. And he was giving me some pushback about my characterization of it as a coup and kind of, and in doing so, disrupting the narrative that Russia is kind of um, uh, the sole aggressor here, okay, kind of one-sidedly the aggressor here. Does anyone, I mean, does anyone else have any, you know, thoughts and feelings or complications about this idea or, or ambiguity about that particular tension point? Because I do want to air what I would anticipate to be the pushback against that. Well, I just want to be clear that I'm not entirely comfortable with the word coup either. Mm. So it's like, I know that our government was in, was involved in the transition um, before it happened. They handpicked the person that went into the government. And it's like the behind the scenes, how that happened. I don't know, but there really were real protesters out there on the Maidan. And I don't want to, diminished the fact that there were plenty of people in Ukraine that did want a Western-friendly government in charge. But when I look at the situation, this all happened two years before their next election was scheduled. So this wasn't a democratic move, and we know that our government was involved. So that's why I will use that word just because when I'm trying to explain it, it's the closest thing I have that fits. There's also... Go ahead, please, yeah. Uh-oh. Uh, I was going to say there's also more evidence of U.S. involvement, given the fact that uh, since 1991, uh, this was from Victoria Newland's mouth, uh, the U.S. had spent $5 billion uh, through, uh, through things like the National Endowment for Democracy, USAID, 
to sort of shift Ukraine public opinion, to to alter or to influence Ukraine public uh, civil society. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who don't know, the National Endowment for Democracy is essentially this, it, it's a private foundation, but it's funded uh, almost entirely by the State Department. Um, and I think it was David Ignatius in the Washington Post described it as doing what the CIA used to do in private, only in public. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure all of your listeners know that the CIA is not really in the interest of democracy. They're in the interest of overthrowing democratically elected governments. And part of the way they do this is by uh, backing opposition groups, by funding media operations, by, uh, by funding NGOs who are favorable to the Western point of view. Now, if you had uh, Russia pouring in you know, $5 billion over uh, a period of time into civil society in Mexico, uh, trying to push it towards, uh, you know, closer to Russian integration. Well, we'd rightly say that, yes, the Russians are pushing Mexico. The Russians are trying to meddle in the affairs of Mexico. And those are only the, those are only the figures that we know of. Like, uh, the Newland call that, that Bryony mentioned, uh, that, that's the only evidence that's public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, we're, there, there's, guaranteed to be a lot more under the surface that we probably won't know until, you know, like 30, 40 years from now. Uh, but I think evidence of U.S. involvement in this uh, <laughs> this transition uh, is pretty clear. So some people would say, the response would be, well, also Russia was propagandizing in the disputed region regions in the East, and it's even Stevens. And of course, people leverage these claims not just kind of neutrally, but in order to make arguments, right? Arguments about how, yeah, sure, you know, the the extent that you're trying to say that it wasn't organic or or undemocratic, you know, basically let's say U.S. and Russia cancel each other out, and so ultimately it's what the people wanted. It's about making claims about what the people wanted, right? So what do do you say to someone like that that says, well, the the Russians were meddling too? Well, I'd say that the Russians have been, you know, deeply integrated in Ukraine, and uh, you know, they were they were part of the same country for a, a long time. And the issue, I think, comes from the fact that the U.S. tried to pry Ukraine from Russia. Uh, like Russian meddling in Ukraine was basically Ukraine Ukrainian politics for a while. Uh, and when the U.S. after the Cold War, the U.S. stepped in and started, you know, funding opposition groups, started. Uh, trying to meddle in their own way and, you know, trying to shift Ukraine into the Western sphere of influence, into that world trade system uh, that, that Jen talks about so much. Um, and part of part of the whole package of that world trade system includes NATO expansion. And, you know, we all know that NATO expansion was a core issue at the root of this, uh, at the root of this whole crisis. And so if you have the United States pushing Ukraine society closer to NATO, uh, closer to NATO, closer to the West. Um, well, then that's sort of an aggressive move on the United States' part. Had they not done this, had they not been pushing, trying to pry Ukraine from a, a Russian sphere of influence, well, then a lot of these problems really wouldn't have arisen. So let's talk about NATO because, you know, this is a post-Cold War defensive pact and so many people are, are, are uh, um, an anti-Soviet defensive pact. 
and many people are, are saying that because, and I brought this up in the context of the interview, that since we don't have a Soviet Union anymore, it doesn't make sense to have a NATO anymore. And it was interesting to me that Matt seemed to not really engage with that point much. What did you guys make of that? Well, I mean, I feel like it's kind of beside the point because that's not really what Putin right now is even asking for. Mm. Like, I have, I watched his speech twice, like, took details and he wasn't asking for that. Like, what he's asking for them to do is basically take the weapons out of all of the countries that used to be a part of the USSR and take the weapons out of Ukraine. Like, you know, we make a lot of his demand that NATO not accept Ukraine into into the Union. But one of the points that he made that I found actually quite compelling is that he was saying it doesn't really matter, matter if Ukraine right now is an official member of NATO, if Ukraine is doing military exercises with NATO and has NATO's military infrastructure installed all over the country. It was kind of like, yeah. what's the difference if you have these missiles that can hit Moscow in under eight minutes. So I just kind of feel like we don't really have to have the conversation of blowing up NATO right now. Right now, I think what we need to decide is, do we really need to have these weapons on Russia's border? And I'm not sure that the answer is yes. Um, I feel like if we want to have a route to peace, like that could be a place of negotiations and I just feel like where no one's asking for NATO to disappear like why pretend that they are right right like I don't I don't even think that uh, a dissolution of NATO is even remotely on the cards especially in this current like U.S. climate uh I don't think that I I don't think that that's like on the cards but what, what you're saying is exactly right like this whole thing was about demilitarizing this whole area of the former Soviet republics, trying to get the U.S., you know, bases, missiles, uh, get them away from Russia's border. I mean, they, they've, they've been pointed at him for quite, quite a while, and it seems that Ukraine was sort of uh, Putin's last straw. Like, when we, when we helped to overthrow the government and pushed it, uh, pushed it towards the West um, and started flooding it with weapons, well, that naturally makes Putin nervous. That's that's a normal thing. And during this whole rise of tensions, Putin was very clear about a path toward de-escalation. He wanted a comprehensive, you know, security agreement that would uh, remove all those weapons. That would it, di- it did include a, a halt to NATO expansion, but like you said, that that's secondary. The big thing is all all of these weapons, and the U.S. ignored that just same way they've been ignoring it for the last thirty years. And I think it was uh, George Kennan who said that the Russians will react to this eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will react to this. And when they do, the NATO expanders will say that these are how the Russians behave. This is how the Russians behave. These are who the Russians are. But that would be incorrect because in a very real sense, we push them towards this way. Like even if you, Even if you don't think that Putin is a rational actor, even if you think that, uh, you know, he's a, he's a crazy Hitlerian fascist, uh, I think you would do well to at least try to negotiate. You would, you would at least well to take some of the legitimate security concerns into consideration. You would try to negotiate. You would send a proposal. If they reject it, that's, that's one thing. 
But in this case, in the last couple of months, the U.S. refused to negotiate on those terms. They ignored the rest of the quest. Hubris? Uh, do you think it's because they just were going to play this game of chicken with Putin and presumed he would back down? Like, why do you think it was that we, they were, America was willing to escalate in this way, given that this is now a conflict between two nuclear powers and hashtag World War III is all over the Internet? <laughs> I think it's not really an America thing. I think it's a Joe Biden thing. And, like, if you look at it from Putin's perspective, like, America went – first of all, I don't know if he knows how few of us know about 2014, um, but we went and elected him president of the United States, and he went and made Victoria Newland basically number two at the State Department. You know what's really in- insane is that they were having um, meetings about whether or not they were going to keep um, their – I I don't really know what to call it, like the mission in Brussels, if Russia was going to stay with the NATO, you know, keep having the meetings and stuff. Mm -hmm. The person that we sent to negotiate that was Victoria Nuland. To even get her into Russia, we had to negotiate to get the sanctions off of her because Russia didn't want her on their soil. So we had to spend political capital to get the actual worst person to be sitting on our side of the table to go the meeting didn't go well because Russia pulled out of um, that NATO. Um, it's not in a lie. I don't know. I'm missing the word, but um, <laughs> Russia pulled out of that meetings um, in Russia in, uh, in Brussels. Brussels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, and so you just look at the actual humans that we have sitting on our side of the table, the people that did the Ukraine coup. I think we're just being led by the absolute worst people. And Putin can see the calendar as well as I can. Like, he started amassing troops a year ago. I mean, Biden had been president for like five minutes. And Putin went like, we're going to have problems here. And here we are one year and one month after the beginning of the Biden administration. And, you know, Ukraine is popping. And I just feel like he can see the calendar. We have four years of Biden, possibly eight. And these people are this arrogant. They are this devoted to the idea that their economic system should be global. And I think that he just had to show how big his balls are. That's my guess. Because was it you or, or maybe it was during Glenn Greenwald's stream earlier today where he was contrasting Obama's response to the 2014 Crimea event to Biden now. And basically saying that, you know, Obama knew well enough to stay out of it and was criticized at that point by a kind of united national security, you know, team on both sides of the aisle for being, you know, quote unquote, weak on Russia. But by um, Obama's point was, you know, Russia is a small economy, the size of Italy. And it's, it's, it's not all that. And he was willing to say, I'm going to sit this one out and kind of kind of stick the landing on at least that kind of pseudo non-interventionist aspect of the person he ran as being, and yet here we go with Biden seems to have a very different relationship with the region. And I was being reminded through, I think, both your episode and what Glenn Greenwald was saying about the relationship um, to Biden and Hunter and Ukraine and impeachment. And it does really seem it's it's so messy. It's so <laughs> ugly. It does feel like something very particular about Joe Biden is at play here. And Stephen, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be blocking you out of this conversation. I was going to come to you um, 
in a second about some of these bigger philosophical issues, but please feel free to jump in whenever. I'm not offended at all. I love hearing Jen and Bryce speak. Okay. So remind us, remind us for the uninitiated and those who haven't listened to six hours of live streaming today about, you know, the, the Hunter Biden, um, you know, oil salary, uh, fossil fuel salary, uh, connection. Who's that question? Either of you. Sorry. Whomever. Oh, like Hunter Biden getting the Burisma job? Correct. Yeah. So um, right after the – we're going to call it a coup because that's the easiest thing to call it. But right after the coup, a major Russian – or not Russian, Ukrainian oil company decided to hire Hunter Biden, not because he had any experience in fossil fuels at all. He didn't. But because he was Joe Biden's idiot son. And I think that just goes to speak to – how important the the company knew having connections to the Biden family would be for their prospects. Um, I think you said it perfectly, Brie, where there's just something about the situation that feels very Joe Biden specific. Like that whole family has been crazy in Ukraine. And I think that's why they impeached Trump over it. I think that if Trump was successful in getting Zelensky to look up any kind of dirt on the Bidens, there's plenty of dirt there. So I think they just had to, like, squash the whole thing. Um, Yeah, Joe Biden's been at the center of this since the beginning. And the fact that we elected him president. (laughs) Yeah, it's very suspicious, especially since, I mean, I asked us, I made the point to us, because I had been talking with some other folks, and they were saying this is a very poor, you know, the Donbass region is very poor. It's not resource rich. And they were making this case that it's, even if, you know, it does become part of Russia that it basically brings down Russia's averages. You know what I mean? It's like not exactly the kind of place you want to annex. But in the course of listening to your episode, Jen, you were talking about the shale reserves that Ukraine is not able to access with its own technology, but are in fact rich. And of course, access to the, these pipelines. And it, it struck me that everywhere I turn, this conversation keeps coming back to fossil fuel interests. Yep. <laughs> and and I'm not like I, I'm not trying to be funny, but it the the you know, Bernie issues that statement at the end uh the a couple of days ago, at the end of which he says, you know, we need a Green New Deal to help us not have to make diplomatic decisions based on energy reserves. You look you look at the speech that um Biden gave was earlier today and the one he gave yesterday, the day before yesterday where there's all of this emphasis on oil and gas prices. And during the episode, I alluded to the fact that, you know, one could use this as political cover for these high gas prices you're already getting blamed for, at least wrap it in a, in a flag. But also the the focus in the speech today, in the remarks today, was all about how no matter what happens, we aren't going to do sanctions in a way that would imperil people's access to oil. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when it comes to, um, sorry, I just brain farted. (laughs) The what? Burisma? uh, Uh, No, the, oh, yes, yes, yes. One of the things that I've noticed, because I have a lot of congressmen in my Twitter feed, is that (laughs) there are so many of them that are absolutely salivating at the prospect of having this, this argument 
for expanding oil and gas drilling in the United States because now we can supply Europe. Like that's going to be the solution. Like get them off of Russian gas and have them buy our fossil fuels instead where really the ultimate solution to all of this, like if you really want to neuter Russia, all of us get off fossil fuels. Like just take it out of the equation. But that's not the direction they want to go. Like the Republicans in particular are pushing hard to drill baby drill and it's absolutely infuriating. Um, I'm going to open this up for questions in a second, um, but I do want to come to you, Stephen, and ask you about this question because we talked about it when we did the Afghanistan withdrawal episode. And a part of me in the in the conversation with Dust, it was before I had done today's research. You know, I had only done the one day's worth of research, and I felt as though I had come to the kind of intellectual conclusion, like the kind of analytical conclusion, rather, that regardless of what you think about who's at fault, et cetera. The fundamental question that we have to ask as a non-interventionist left is if there is some standard for intervention, it has been met. And because we can't have, we never have a conversation about what that standard would look like in an objective way. I almost don't even care what happened. It's none of my business. I mean, like that sounds very callous. I don't mean it in that way, but it's almost just, that's, that's, I don't know her. That's none of my business. And when I asked Dust that, he was like, well, yeah, we should think about the number of human lives lost and this and that and the other, and an, an enormous number of incredibly subjective factors. And he, he argued that you know, doing nothing would result in more, more life, loss of life and catastrophe than doing something. And I asked him just to follow it through to its logical conclusion because if doing something, like if you acknowledge, and this this was so funny, it came out in the line of questioning today at the Biden press conference. If you concede on some level that doing your little sanctions aren't going to stop Putin, and they didn't in fact stop Putin, then you're even either admitting that you're actually not doing anything, that you might as well just not do anything, or you're admitting that you are willing to escalate in a way that could actually lead to a confrontation between two nuclear powers. In which case, there is an argument that doing something is worse than doing nothing because now we're all dead in a nuclear holocaust. And I, I mean, I didn't say that as explicitly, but that's what was going through my mind. Am I, am I taking crazy pills here? Am I completely off base? Am I being an alarmist? What's, what do you think? No, and I thought you did a good job with the interview uh, as a whole. I think the one thing, the best analysis that I've read have, you know, taken the leftist anti-imperialist values and have integrated into the policy prescriptions that they're recommending. It's not like uh, the lazy leftist analysis just said, well, we have no right to comment on this at all whatsoever. It's like, okay, yeah, like I totally get it. And in fact, like, you know, the liberals who just discovered the word anti-imperialism, you know, just the other day, they're incredibly (laughs) annoying. And I, you know, you know, I, I, I get it. Um, so there's a kind of a natural reflective uh, reaction to just sort of say, no, it's, we have no you know, business commenting and we have no moral business commenting. But, you know, a few weeks ago, you know, before I became, you know, the brain genius that I am today, I was, you know, just overcome by optimism, seeing this, you know, uh, the buildup really start to escalate because I thought, you know, OK, there has to be someone in this entire fucking administration who has just an ounce of creativity where this buildup could say, like, I mean, at that point, it was, you know, clear at that point that Putin wanted demilitarization. It wasn't, you know, he would mention NATO here and there, but, you know, looking at U.S. policy and the patterns of U.S. military aid, I mean, Ukraine gets more military aid than pretty much every NATO member. Um, and that's part mm-hmm. because it's disparity in wealth. But, um, you know, I thought there could be a framework that 
the U.S. could eventually just sort of kickstart a uh, dialogue with Russia where we just gradually start uh, demilitarizing, you know, the border space. Um, and that then that would lead to broader nuclear disarmament talks. Because we have these old, like, kind of dinosaur nuclear warheads just scattered across Europe that Putin's obviously not too pleased with. And same with, you know, pretty much any Russian, I would, I would assume. Um, and then Europeans really aren't too fond of either. So I was really hoping, um, again, uh, this was back when I was just an idiotic boob two weeks ago. But I was hoping that, um, you know, the Biden administration would really lean on this opportunity to, to restart nuclear weapons reduction talks. That's what I was really hoping. Um, but, you know, going back to sort of what you're saying, um, I, I wish um, that there would be more language and more talk among the left that blends the leftist values and say, okay, there's different things that we can do. I mean, I don't think there's any military solution to this thing that the, that the U.S. can help with. Um, it, a really popular, there's like zero good ideas coming from Congress, by the way, and a popular, a popular bad idea that's being pushed by Congress is just to dump U.S. weapons in there. Um, <laughs> as if to say like, oh, well, uh, definitely won't stop, you know, a pretty advanced military, a top 10 spender in the world uh, from rolling across this country, but it'll make life extremely difficult. And it's like, no, I mean, I get that to like an extreme extent, but like, you know, centering your policy on that, you're basically saying, okay, let's just, you know, just to spite Putin. I mean, we're obviously going to, you know, kill his country with, with sanctions or have the capacity to, we're just going to inconvenience him as sort of a performative gesture by dragging out a really bloody uh, insurgency in Ukraine. And obviously it's up to, you know, uh, Ukrainians themselves to what, to what they do, whether they surrender or fight. But I don't like the idea of centering policy on just this uh, reaction to dump U.S. weapons in, and then that's the excuse of doing something. I would really like to see, one, you know, diplomacy. Two, you know, action, if the United States is to be involved and not delegated to, you know, uh, powers that have close relationships with Russia, like France and Germany, I would like to see Biden really push for humanitarian corridors, talk about uh, delegating responsibility for humanitarian action, um, dealing with refugee crisis. That, to me, if there's no if there's no good answers, then you just do what you can. You know yeah, well, what I mean? Jen Psaki got to ask a question about whether America was prepared to uh, accept refugees today. And she says, uh, yes, but I think most of them are going to want to stay in Europe. It was a very quick, I mean, of course you have to say yes, but I don't think most of them are going to want to come here, which to me says that she's already talked to, you know, America's already talked to European countries like, you better take these, we're not taking these. Um, uh, well, the thing to imagine, but the thing to remember is that Jen Psaki is a legitimate psychopath. And, like, she is really <laughs> awful. And questions about humanity really bother her. I, I mean, so, you know, when she, when, when, I think she's kind of giving up a little bit too, like, preparing for next gig at, you know, Amazon or, you know, Pegasus Spyware or whatever. But I, I really worry that, 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 you know, she's consistently shitting on good questions and good conversations that need to be had. And, you know, whoever the reporter was to ask that, you know, good on him, you know, yeah, uh, good on him, you know, um, if it was Jeff Stein, probably he's in like, you know, a pretty good job, I guess. I mean, I hope he keeps yeah. working out. He's doing great. He's, he's a but hero, he a taco also... eating hero. <laughs> yeah, he's doing great. So, I mean, if, like there's no point in sort of shitting on those questions because that's really what should be guiding uh, Biden's policy. Uh, now, all that said, I was extremely worried. This is the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll say. Because again, I prefer Bryce and Jen speaking on this thing. Anyway, Brianna, uh, much love. 
Uh, and callers. <laughs> Thanks for uh, calling in. But uh, I think, you know, the one thing that I was extremely worried about is if you look at every airstrike Biden has conducted so far in his presidency, the common trait is that U.S. troops have been on the ground, usually conducting and train and equip and advise mission, which was, again, sort of how the U.S., I mean, what the U.S. has been basically doing, like, you know, since at least 2000, but pretty hardcore, not in, like, starting in 2016. Um, and then it's just been building up from there. Um, and I was worried that, um, uh, you know, there would be a Russian incursion as there is, and then Biden would launch a preemptive strike against Russian forces approaching, uh, us military advisors. And he's done this before in Iraq. He's literally cited not the 2001 AUMF, not any sort of statutory, statutory, uh, authority. But a constitutional one, Article 2, and he's literally invoking self-defense, quote-unquote self-defense, you know, 6,000 miles away, uh, you know. Uh, so I was worried that, you know, he's used that uh, justification in uh, uh, Somalia, Iraq, and Syria. I was worried that he would do that again, uh, except with the nuclear armed power, and that was extremely, extremely worrisome. But he yeah. came out, so, so all this is he came out today and said, look, we're, all U.S. troops are out. We're not getting involved. And he's been pretty consistent on that. And for that, I'm thankful. Although, I mean, again, I mean. Well, unless unless Russia attacks a NATO country, then all bets are off. Exactly. Yeah. It's game he kind of said, like, we're going to abandon Ukraine. Like, that's the way I saw his whole speech today, where it was like, oh, well, we're, we're going to defend every inch of sand if it's a NATO country. But Ukraine, like, eh, we're going to do some sanctions, which Putin said in his speech, like, he doesn't care. So... What I thought was, I, I was alarmed when Biden said that he and Putin were no longer talking, that that yeah. negotiations were off the table. So it's like, at least provide some you know, clarity here, Joe, because, I mean, like, is someone else taking over lead negotiations then? Because, I mean, if Putin invaded to, you know, to either secure what he wants or strengthen his, his negotiation position, it's like you're not in a better negotiation position now. Everything's just harder now. It's going to continue to get harder to reach a diplomatic agreement. So just, you know, get on it. This isn't, you know, I don't, you know, I, I know the liberal media loves uh, when you act moody and sassy towards Putin, but really just kind of <laughs> behave like an adult here and try to get an agreement done. It's like you don't have to like him or, or kiss him. Just, you know, just behave like an adult and try to get this, uh, you know, uh, figured out as quickly as possible for the Ukrainian people. And for the whole of Europe, they claim to care about. Can we can we talk about Putin's end game for a second before I go to callers? I know you guys have been very patient. Normally, I, I take calls more uh, more quickly, but I I am very. This is a, a great panel, and I just I, I know that people had took issue with what Matt Desk brought to the table. So I want an opportunity to get this version of facts on the table before we get into all the reasons why you're mad at me for having Matt Desk on. But <laughs> I. Uh, I wanted to ask what you think Putin's endgame is. So you're talking about him being, putting himself in a better negotiating position. Negotiating for what exactly? Because one part of this conversation that we haven't really touched on is the uh, Minsk agreement, agreement and this narrative coming out of the mainstream that says we should just force Ukraine to hold up its end of the bargain. But as it's been explained to me – oh God, Sorry, it's just a little late. <laughs> well, yeah, well – this was this is kind of what the narrative was before yesterday, uh, more so. But you know the, the idea that there was this resolution to the civil war um, that 
basically my understanding is it was kind of poorly drafted and was in contained. I think you put it as poison pills, Jen, in that one of the consequences of the agreement would be that the the region would be a kind of its own state-like independent status, but because it had that independent status, it could basically vote in a way that would prevent Ukraine from getting closer to the West and joining NATO or anything like that. And the you know the West did not like that aspect of it, and there's parts of you know the I guess the western part of Ukraine also did not like that aspect of it, and there was basically uh, the the agreement laid out in a sequence of events who had to go first in terms of you know, backing away from the border, laying your arms down and allowing there to be elections in this region that would then determine whether or not, you know, either the Russian faction one would be able to disrupt joining NATO or becoming closer to the West or whether or not the kind of Western Ukrainian faction would win, thereby undermining Russian power in the country, right? Mm -hmm. And then because there was the sequence of events made it very imbalanced about who was going to be better advantageous advantaged by it. And because the thing was so poorly written that it wasn't clear who was supposed to go first, there was no real ability to make anybody do anything here because the incentives were so skewed. And I, I know that I, t- I said that in a very messy way, but. Well, I think what's unfortunate here is that we've never really had any power to tell Russia what to do, but we have plenty of power to tell Ukraine what to do. And there was no indication whatsoever that we actually were telling Ukraine, like, okay, the world has agreed on a solution to this. Do your part. Like, we weren't pressuring them, um, at least not publicly, and I was looking for it. And so when Putin, at the end of his speech, talked about his solution to the Donbass, it was basically like, because what Minsk was saying was, this region is going to remain part of Ukraine, but it's going to have autonomy. So the the analogy I made, it was, it would kind of be like a state in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, what Putin basically said at the end of his speech was like, okay, they're not holding up, holding up their end of the deal. It's been seven years. How much longer are we going to let this go on? So I'm declaring them independent. We're going to sign these deals with them. And then the tanks rolled in to defend it. When I went to sleep last night, that is what I thought the reality was. Now what's the end game? I have no idea. I never expected there to be missiles in Kiev today. Everything I'm seeing here in Europe indicates that no one expected this. Like, I really don't know what end game is. And I think that's the scariest part of all of this is that you just can't tell. Like, his speech didn't really tell us this, but he did say exactly what he wanted. And it was all of these, like, get the the weapons away from my border. Like that's the one thing that he's been really, you know, um, stuck on. So I just feel like if we were going to offer a concession, that's the one I feel like that could stop this. What about this argument that what he really wants to do is reconstitute the Soviet union and that all of the references in his speech to the long history of, you know, Soviet power in the region and the special relationship that Russia has to all these countries, it indicates that, that is his bigger game plan. What do you what do you make of those arguments? I that's not how I heard what he was saying. Mm. So I and I watched it twice. Like that's not what I heard. And like obviously, like there was a translator there. So I don't know. But what I was hearing is he was saying that Ukraine has these borders, but they were drawn by the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union broke up, and here's the reasons like why that happened. And after the breakup. 
Ukraine was an independent country. We tried to help them be independent. We gave them all this money, but then 2014 happened and they've been a puppet government ever since. I wasn't hearing like, I want to restart the Soviet Union. If anything, I was hearing Putin saying all the reasons that it didn't work. And like, he definitely said like, it's a shame. But if you kept listening to that sentence, he was explaining like the shame of like why the union couldn't stay together. Like, I, I didn't hear that he was trying to recreate it at all. Right. I think that that whole narrative comes from just selective, selective quoting of the speech. Like people are saying, oh, he's saying that uh, Ukraine doesn't have the right to exist. Look how they didn't exist back before uh, uh, or back during the Soviet Union. And we should go get back to that. I, I, it seems to me like it's just a bunch of kind of lazy journalism. I mean. Yeah, yeah, that's you know not unheard of, <laughs> but yeah. it, it, mm-hmm. but it does fuel the narrative. It does fuel the narrative that uh, you know Putin is evil and you know he's Hitlerian and he won't stop after after uh, Ukraine and that and you keep hearing that and in fact people are even saying that Putin is planning on attacking like like NATO countries next and I'm like that's that's ridiculous like you you're discredited but uh, the, as to his end game it. It seems that he is turning away from Europe as a whole. Like invading Ukraine, he has tarnished his image in Europe, like for good, like for the foreseeable future. Like he's a he's a pariah state. Um, well, right. Let me let me ask you this though. I got to push back because I mean, so many people on the left who are my friends and I respect said that this would never happen. That sending troops into Ukraine would never happen. With the missiles. Firing would never happen. And everyone kind of woke up yesterday or, you know, experienced what? it yesterday in kind of shock. You know, yeah. Yeah. So how, how confident are you? I mean, like, that's, I think, what gives people a certain level of uncertainty about what might happen with respect to NATO countries. Right. Well, I, I think the, the calculations are different, mostly because if it is NATO, then it is like attacking the United States. And that's like nuclear war game over. And. Putin knows we won't tolerate that. He knew that Ukraine wasn't a NATO country now. And so that that was, you know, within the realm of possibility. I really didn't expect him to attack. But the fact that he's willing to attack Ukraine now, to me, that signals that he's done with the rest of Europe. Because I don't think that I don't think that Putin's crazy enough to attack a NATO country and risk nuclear war. It seems like uh, like there's a Dr. Strangelove automatic doomsday machine Mm. Uh, just waiting to go off. So I don't think that he's that crazy. And from what I've, from what I've seen of Putin's history of Putin's like actions as a uh, head of state, it doesn't seem that erratic. He doesn't seem like an irrational person. Like he waited like eight years for the Minsk agreements and the Donbass republics repeatedly asked him, Hey, come, come in and help us uh, recognize us officially. And he was like, no, uh, you need to stick with the Minsk accords until uh, very recently. So I, 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 re- I don't think that, uh, that he has designs on NATO countries, perhaps maybe other, other non-NATO countries in his sphere of influence, but even that. Because yeah, Belarus is getting them sanctions too. Mm-hmm. Belarus is what? Getting the sanctions. Oh yeah. 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 Well, it, it seems like he's more trying to reconstitute the last front that he can uh, of, of like the Russian sphere of influence. 
like sort of sort of like creating creating a buffer with Ukraine and these Donbass republics. But uh, I mean, it really is it really is hard to say. Uh, one of um, no no, I'll stop. That's it's really hard to say. <laughs> well, well, let's let's take some questions um, and remind me to come back to this point of sanctions. I think I want to ask you, Stephen, because. A lot of leftists before yesterday were saying, okay, sanctions, they're targeted, they're hitting the oligarchs, it's fine. We on the left, we don't support sanctions because they hurt the people of these countries who aren't responsible. But if there are these targeted sanctions that are targeting Putin and his senior leadership and their family and oligarchs, then that's fine. As I mentioned on the show, Katie Halper had a guest on the other night who was saying that the sanctions are very inconsistent because the guy who owns the Chelsea soccer team isn't getting sanctioned because of the implications for British sport. And, like, (laughs) that's a whole thing. But I I do want to come back to this ethical question of of sanctions. But let's take Matt as a caller first. He's gone. It's Omar. What's up, Omar? Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Yes. What's on your mind? Okay. So, I mean, first of all, I was just really kind of frustrated because it just seems like now all of a sudden when it's not the U.S. dropping bombs, like everybody's freaking out like it's World War III and this isn't that. I mean, we're bombing the Middle East every other week and I don't see people getting that concerned. So that's just something that's been bothering me mainly. Like, why is it that it's only it's only World War III magnitude when it's some other country doing doing the killing, right? Um, on the other end, of that, what I was thinking about is there was a local news report, and they just, just happened to pick out, like, a random Ukrainian lady from San Diego and saying how she has family members over there, and they were really scared about about the invasion and whatnot. And there's always this kind of fear-mongering going on, and then as leftists, we also have this kind of international solidarity thing. Mm-hmm. And kind of to change, change the context a little bit, like, you guys remember when there was a Hong Kong protest, and they were all waving, like, American flags and stuff like that? Like, when you ask Brie, like, what gives us the right to be the, the world police? I mean, I completely agree with that question. I don't know how you think about this issue, because if you ask people in Ukraine, like, oh, yeah, U.S., come help us, or you ask the Hong Kong protesters, they're going to be waving flags, U.S., do something. But at the end of the day, is that really what you want? Do you really want the U.S. intervening in your country? Or do you really think that's going to be something, something that's going to help the situation rather than make it worse? So when we're talking about international solidarity, I just... I think that's a tough question to think about because, I mean, I, I'm I'm more of a non-interventionist, and I think the only way we can go about this right now is diplomacy. But that's mainly it. Yeah. Yeah. Th- thank you for that, Omar. Let Let me put that question to the panel because this kind of gets back to that core issue: Is it enough for some subset of a population to wave an American flag and say, "Say, come help us"? I mean. If I wave, I've been waving my American flag saying somebody save me from my student debt for quite some time and they'll be swooped in. <laughs> and I've paid taxes Amen. here. Amen. <laughs> I guess the way, the way I look at it is that no matter how good intentioned people who, like American leftists who advocate U.S. intervention are, even if they have like the, the purest of motives, what you're essentially doing is giving a mandate to mm-hmm the you know the blob to do whatever needs under the guise of whatever the pure intentions are and i've never seen the blob come up with anything good yeah. like it, like if we or like like humanitarian intervention like for libya for example 
Like there were leftists all around talking about all all of the atrocities from Gaddafi and saying that we need to go and do something. Mm-hmm. Um, setting aside the fact that you know, like some of them are false and there was there was a lot of like weird propaganda going on. Setting aside that fact, even if you assume that yes, there are atrocities going on, and that yes, in theory, the United States could make things better by simply stopping the atrocities and doing nothing else. That's not usually what's going to happen. You're giving the reins of this whole American beast to, like, the the national security thing, and they have I mean, their they, own. They can only make it worse, right? Yeah, I they they really can only make it worse. Uh, you know, Caitlin Johnstone, she's you know mm-hmm. big big on Twitter. Uh, she she makes the analogy of like Godzilla. It's like, um, yes, we need something to happen. What do we do? Uh, well, we could send in Godzilla. Uh, but Godzilla always makes everything worse. But we have to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, Godzilla's bad. Uh, like, which is, he, which is yeah, worse. you got to send in Mothra. He, there come as a team. <laughs> Did we learn nothing from the movies we all watched during COVID? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, well, I guess I don't know what the uh, what the analog for King Kong is, but we need a King Kong, and yeah. there doesn't seem to be one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And it does, I mean, I think that analogy is really apt because, I mean, Godzilla truly does just cause more destruction than anything else in this wake. And I was very confused about the incentives in those movies as well. Um, thank you for that, Omar. I don't want to cut anybody off if you had another res- response. Um, the, the only thing is just um, in the long term, just uh, another word to think about international solidarity too, because I think that's an important component of the leftist project. But then I, I, I don't know how to go about solidarity when it comes to armed conflicts. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point, too. I wanted, uh, I asked, I reached out to Socialist Alternative to ask if they had, you know, what their position was. And they sent me a statement of basically solidarity with the people in all of the countries involved. Um, it starts, um, ISA expresses its full solidarity with the people of Ukraine who already suffer exploitation, oppression, corruption, and growing poverty conditions and now face the horror of war and bloodshed. As Russian troops and tanks have crossed the border into Ukraine, the first people have already been killed. Missile attacks have hit military bases and, and airfields. There are already reports of shooting in residential areas. You know, Russian troops should be immediately withdrawn. And there's a whole section on imperialist interests and, you know, stuff like that. I, I'll post it, and it's interesting to look at. And I saw also um, Jill Stein making a similar kind of statement of solidarity with the people of these countries. And it does seem like these types of people with these kinds of politics – I've basically taken the position that it is not our, you know, our, our, our obligation is to the people, not to these imperialist nations on both sides of the equation, which seems like a principled stance, even if it might be unsatisfying from a, we got to do something perspective. Yeah. Cause I don't know if non-interventionism can also be considered some type of like isolationism or more nationalist approach to it. And that's like the the opposite side of the spectrum, right? Like if we just start deciding to do non-intervention, we're not going to get involved in any issues. I mean, I don't know. Is, is it worse to, to have countries turn inward rather than still have a hope for some kind of solidarity? I don't know. I'm, I know I'm beating a dead horse, but my bad. No, not at all. And I appreciate your, your comments, Omar. And if anyone wants to respond to that, go ahead. I'm going to bring uh, Kusha up next. Uh, what's on your mind, Kusha? For some reason, I can't hear you. You're unmuted, but I can't hear you. Kusha? Okay. Uh, get back in the queue, and I will pull you up again. Um, try it again. I'm not sure what's going on there. Eric, you're up next. 
Oh, hey. Um, so really, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm actually kind of trash at foreign policy myself. It's uh, hard. No judgment for me. Yeah, <laughs> I told Crystal but, Ball today, I've been cramming a day harder, long, uh, harder than I ever crammed in law school. <laughs> dang. You should imagine cramming as a math major. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess my, my, my quote rule would be like my, my amount of foreign policy just be like leave other people to fuck alone just leave people alone so like so like fuck the IMF <laughs> fuck NATO <laughs> like, like this that's just a, it, it's it's really simple but I guess it's effective enough um honestly we got you know we got business here why the hell are we worrying about like getting involved in other people's business. Like, bro, we, we got, we got infrastructure. That's what a grade of D or F here. And we, we know our education system is trash. A lot of our actual structures are just our infrastructure trash. Like, like all of our systems are trash and bro, I mean, yeah, well, so let's let's put it this way. Or let, let's put it to the panel this way: is is isolationism? You know, it's thrown out there as this kind of negative. It's it's like a bad word. I remember Wait, learning about I'll, I'll, it in a, in a in a school context, and it's like that's the bad guy. That's the version that lets the Nazis win, right? Is isolationism unethical? Wait, 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 hold up. If you're gonna if you're gonna ask that, make sure you make make sure you're distinguishing between isolationism and non-interventionism. Well, no, I'm, I'm asking about, well, that's the, here's the, here's the problem because of the nature of American history and because of the nature of our quote unquote security apparatus and the lack of faith and trust we have in it. I I'm struggling to come up with a version of events where we don't feel like America is not justified to intervene because of what it's already done. So even take this scenario with some of the people I've just talked to, including Matt does, there is a conversation about whether or not um, the 2014 event was a coup or not. Right. And for so many people, whether, you know, people on the left, it's like, I almost don't even care. I don't even, I don't even care if it was organic or would have happened that way. Anyway, if this was a democratic, you know, like an organic natural process that would have happened this way, even without the U S intervention, because the U S tainted it. I am skeptical of the outcome. And I'm skeptical, you know, if the U.S. was pushing in this direction, I'm skeptical of the direction it ended up in. And it's, it's almost a moot point. And because our fingerprints are on so many things, everything really globally, at this point, I have a hard time conceiving of a scenario that we perceive of as, as anything other that is isolationist but not non-interventionist. But maybe I'm being overly skeptical. I want to hear what the panel has to say. Overly cynical. Any, any, you, you guys can take it. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Is there a is there a principle? I, I well, again, I keep going back to to the fact that well, if we advocate for any sort of intervention, well, again, we're giving the reins of the state uh, to do with what they to do with that mandate what they will, and I don't trust the people who who are in charge of it. But so, are we saying isolationism? Then, is I, that- I mean, 
Kind of, kind of, yes, but there are ways in which, in theory, the U.S. could intervene without, like, trying to inflict, uh, impose its will on people. Like, if we, instead of, like, sending a bunch of NATO soldiers to, to, or a bunch of soldiers to NATO countries, if we, like, started sending a bunch of volunteers to help with refugees or something, mm-hmm. or if we started, you know, instead of dropping bombs or dropping medical tents or something, like, there, there is, in theory, a way to do that. But, mm-hmm. I, I mean, since the left doesn't really have power in the country, like, we don't have the ability to affect what the state does on a foreign policy level. So our, our only options are to say either, hey, U.S., get involved, or to say, hey, U.S., don't get involved. And between those two options, it seems like the, the clear choice is to say don't get involved. I mean, diplomacy only, like words only. Do not send weapons. Do not do not do any of that. Like I can't, I can't even envision a a scenario in which, like our current U.S. government, would intervene in a positive way. Like if we cared about any civilian casualties, if we cared about like state criminality, if we cared about these sort of things, the first thing we do is to a stop participating in it and b stop supporting it. So and we don't do that in the areas that we have control in. And so the areas that we don't that are like kind of contested like Ukraine, well, we absolutely don't want the US in there because we know that they don't have any sort of uh any any sort of they they, they don't give a shit about civilians. Like they don't give a shit about what the lives of people going on there. And so we need to say hands off. In my I, love, I love what you just said about intervention doesn't necessarily have to mean military. And it really makes me think of China mm, because yes, their Belt and Road Initiative is so smart. Yes. Where they're going in there and building stuff that people need. Like when you look at the Ukraine situation and how dependent they are on Russia for gas for heating their homes in the winter. Like we could intervene by giving them a brand new all electric grid. Mm-hmm. But that's not on the table. So I just think the definition of intervention, maybe if we... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> There's ideas out there that are smart and we just need new people in charge of us. It just keeps coming back to that for me where it's like, you know, when I look at the situation, I don't necessarily look at this as like America versus Russia. I really do look at the 2014 people are the exact same humans in charge now so it's like i'm really looking at like the relationship between putin and biden i mean these are really just squabbles between men and what sucks is that ukraine is stuck in the middle of it Mm. um yeah yeah Uh, thank thank you eric i'm gonna bring um kusha back see if his mic works this time kusha what's on your mind hello brianna are you able to hear me i can what what that's what questions did you have for our illustrious panel today? Well, that's so kind of you, firstly, for just bringing me back in when my microphone wasn't working for some reason. I really do appreciate that. And I also want to give you for earlier this week during call and you invited me back in to, with the space to discuss foreign policy and that you're so willing to follow along this queue and allow me and everyone else not to just provide agreements, but also good faith challenges. It's my pleasure, Kusha. You always... Um have good foreign policy insights. So I'm curious to know what's on your mind today. Absolutely. So what I was mentioning earlier 
was that one of the biggest issues, and it was raised just now, uh, not just this moment, but during this episode by Stephen. And he said that, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, that taking the leftist anti-imperialist analysis is very important for him. And this, again, is an issue that I've tried to raise on as many left-wing programs as I have access to, because uh, you raised it when you were speaking with Matt Dust to some degree or another, and I watched that in preparation for today. And um, I think it's very important, absolutely, because it's a very noticeable tendency of the U.S. left, and we see the tensions show here and there. But oftentimes it may come up passive aggressively or whatnot instead of people just going directly at its mouth and looking it in the face unflinchingly. Like we just saw with Kyle Kalinske and Aaron Maté, Kyle Kalinske and Caleb Maupin. This tension is there and it needs to be addressed. Anti-imperialism, what anti-imperialism means. And I appreciate that you give me the opportunity to just share what I understand for it and if I can inform others to the degree that I can. Because I need to mention it by name because Aaron Maté, not just today on his program, but in the last Useful Idiots column, he uh, mentioned with Katie Halper that the mainstream media is very bad at letting dissenting voices on and that a good journalist is supposed to be one who's willing to challenge but do so respectfully. Yet he has just been removing me from the queue left and right when I try to raise these questions, similar as I'm doing right now, about what anti-imperialism means. And we see this ideology of anti-imperialism through many prominent platform voices on the and the left in the United States and the West. Max Blumenthal, Ben Norton, Rania Kalik, Anya Parampil, Caleb Maupin, Ryan Wentz, Margaret Kimberly. And then in contrast, the ideology that I uh, ascribe to, and I think you do to one degree or another, though I haven't heard you flesh it out fully, as you were saying, you were doing a lot of foreign policy homework and, and preparation and so on. But I believe that Yanis Varoufakis, Cornel West, his wife, Professor Anita Mahdavi, Peter Dow, Ryan Grimm, and human rights journalist Gisu Nia ascribed to, which is one of universalist human rights solidarity. And this comes with me saying that, look, I recognize, it's very important to recognize that human rights have in recency been used very manipulatively by the U.S. war machine to justify invasions like in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya. I acknowledge that in full. But that's just the same way you can talk about how Hillary Clinton weaponized sexism and racism when she said, if I break up the banks, is sexism going to stop? Is racism going to stop? Those are real issues, but it's being weaponized by mm. bad faith actors. That's, and that's why I cherish that you really approach life and politics with good faith. What are some of the key mindsets and arguments between the anti-imperialist lens? I'm going to try to steel man it, not straw man it. That firstly, like, it's not my place to criticize enemy governments because I'm a citizen of the West. Or that, you know, I live in, in the U.S. and I pay taxes to the U.S. government. That I'm most responsible for the actions of my government because I can make a difference there. Therefore, my primary concern is the actions of my government. That I can't make a positive difference for what happens to the people under enemy governments. That the media and political establishment are just going to weaponize what I say as fuel for the war machine anyways. That um, what I said about human rights. That there's no utility in condemning the other enemy governments. Well, I'm not the UN, so it's not my job to endorse or condemn governments. At a time when my government is sanctioning and or fighting a dirty war against this enemy government, I'm not going to grill them. I'm not going to give them negative coverage, only positive or neutral coverage. Solidarity is abstract, and it's just a feel-good. It doesn't effectively amount to much. Or sometimes, like, I don't even speak the language of that enemy government, and I don't have a base of support there. I think that all of these can be picked apart. And what you said earlier in this episode is that we need to follow matters to their logical conclusion, 
Each of these can be false in the logical conclusion picked apart. I would love to hear you reflect on them and your guests reflect on them. That would be very kind. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Yeah, of course. So this is this is interesting. This is so I, I you know, I I like you know, a lot of those people that you mentioned, I invited Rania on tonight, but she, um, you know, there's a big time difference and she also is uh, under the weather currently. And uh, also Aaron, but I think he was doing a concurrent stream and obviously he's getting a lot of requests today. Um, and I, I, I don't know, like there, I think there's definitely an overstatement of the extent to which people in that kind of camp are saying, oh, I'm unwilling to criticize Putin. There are some people that I've seen on the internet today who are either in a tongue in cheek way or sincerely like fist, like doing the Arsenio Hall, like fist bump thing and cheering Putin. But that's a very small percentage of people. Uh, I think most people are, are basically the way I was thinking of it is it's almost like vote blue no matter who. It's like how in 2020, everyone wanted you to like just state on the record that Donald Trump was worse. And I sometimes felt like I don't want to say that because what you're trying to do is strong arm me into some position about how I have to vote for Joe Biden when there are other alternatives. And the same way that I think that sometimes people don't want to say Putin is worse or Putin is bad or Putin is even responsible in part. I'm not saying it's right, but I think that the, the instinct there is not to cover for Putin, but, but to say, I don't want this to become a conversation that's derailed from the government that I have responsibility over as a citizen or that I have ostensibly the ability to control through democracy, um, or that I even understand better because I live here and I can't really speak to the motivations or interests of Ukrainian citizens the way that I can my own countrymen. And so I'm a little I'm a little conflicted because I, I do feel like sometimes people get themselves into a position where their credibility is at stake because they won't just throw out a little bit of like, you know, they're, you know, you know, a, a, a kind of generalized critique of where various p- parties have done badly. I mean, I think that Jill Stein's statement, the social alternative statement, they recognize, you know, Putin shouldn't in- invade. Nobody should be invading anybody. War is bad. Please don't bomb people. Like, that should seem pretty, like, easy to say. Um, and so I hear you on that level, Kusha, but I don't know if I entirely, like, there is a part of me that has sympathy for people like Rania, who or people who are constantly accused of being Putin puppets, who want to resist, you know, leaning into uh, feeding that narrative by even being like put on the record as you know having it like kowtow to this idea that I have to disclaim Putin. I have to disclaim. It's like the, the thing where you you ask during a presidential debate, like, tell me why you beat your wife or something, and then you have to deny it, but the denial becomes the bigger story. Yeah, I hear that. I think if. Uh, can I comment? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were in the, in the middle of a thought, but okay. So, you know, again, I think, um, I don't think every sentence, uh, needs to start with, I understand that Putin is bad and I understand that he launched this invasion and is ultimately his decision to do so. I, I don't think you have to say that like every time. Uh, it's, and it's especially funny when like people do that on Twitter, when it's like, you only have two other characters, like, come on. Um, but, you know, the one thing is, like, as long as you're factoring in the reality of the situation and, you, you know, if, if you say you care about human rights, but you're unwilling to acknowledge what Putin has done and only focus on what the U.S. has done, I mean, there's you can walk and chew gum at the same time. I mean, you can acknowledge the fact that, you know, during the midst of this buildup, it was reported that Biden's going to request more than $800 billion 
in military spending for next year. Um, so, you know, which, by the way, I'm writing an article now, uh, you know, since 2001, 55% of military spending has gone to the private sector to, through DOD yeah. contracts to yeah. military contractors. And because military spending is half of the federal discretionary budget, it means that Biden's basically going to propose privatizing one fourth of fiscal year 2023's budget, which is mm. fucking insane. Mm. But at the same time, you can care about that and work on, you know, tearing down empire. But at the same time, I mean, whatever comments you make about, you know, Ukraine, if you truly care about these people, you have to acknowledge that Putin has spent, you know, the last five years or more bombing Syrian hospitals, uh, you know, indiscriminately, civilian targets, uh, using, you know, not even, you know, I don't buy into the, you know, uh, precision munition, um, you know, narrative, but he's using, you know, dumb, you know, gravity bombs, you know, on <laughs> civilian hospitals. So it's like, it's really no joke. So mm -hmm. it's like, you can, as long as your comments, like, uh, you know, reflect, you know, what the reality at hand, I think you're doing okay. I don't, I empathize with, you know, I think they call them tankies, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I empathize the reflexive reaction um, to, to, you know, sort of just immediately, like, uh, you know, reject anything uh, that's coming out of the U.S. establishment regarding the behavior of other countries. But you know, again, it's all it's all about nuance. It's all. But I, I don't think you. Every interaction has to demand that nuance. Before things got serious, uh, we were. I was planning to call this episode um, some some kind of portmanteau of tanky and brie <laughs> that I was working on. <laughs> then I decided it was too serious to be even making jokes. But we did do a, a hot to trot episode about whether I was a. a a, a trot and um, mm. that's in the archives for people who want to become subscribers. Uh, but I, I, I think I'm with you. I'm with you, Steven. And I hope that was satisfying. Kusha. Let's take Max and see what's on his mind. You're up, hey, Max. Brianna, um, uh, I, I had, a um, so I Kusha kind of covered on a little bit of what I've been thinking about with this whole Russia, Ukraine thing. Um, and the the thing that I'm interested or that I'm uh, a little bit confused about is it seems like there's a big infight on the left um, between like like there's figures like I guess Aaron Mate and uh, and then there's figures like uh, Kyle Kalinsky or Crystal Ball or something and I'm hearing from the Aaron Mate side like maybe not a lot of people, but a lot, uh, a good amount, I think are calling Kyle Kalinske and Crystal Ball and other people imperialists in this sense. Um, I think because their critique of Putin and kind of rec and kind of acknowledging that Putin is also an imperialist um, in this situation and that he has expansion as goals to some extent or another. Mm -hmm. um, and I, 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 I guess if you, I guess the thing I'm confused about is, are, are these are these accusations of someone being an imperialist? Are people really listening to each other's arguments and guarantee the answer is no? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking because it, it seems like 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 the whole there's a similar thing that happens with the vaccine debate, like. Uh, it seems like certain people lean totally into like one side and 
what happens is rhetorically they may sound a little bit more extreme than they are when you don't listen to every point that they're making, I think. Mm-hmm. Like people a lot of people say Jimmy Dore is an anti vaxxer because he basically uh the main idea of most of his segments on vaccines are critiquing the mandate laws and highlighting that, you know, they're not maybe as safe as people presume or whatever. But if you actually listen to each of his points, he is very clearly not uh, anti-vaccine, anti-vaccine. He's just anti-mandate. But I think that because rhetorically he leans so far into that, mm-hmm. uh, that hesitation towards vaccines that people assume that he's anti-vaccine. And I can't tell if that's what's going on, because I think I don't know enough about foreign policy to really make an educated uh, opinion on this. But I can't tell if that's what's going on between these figures on the left. Like, if because Kyle or Crystal or whoever are reminding people that although the, the U.S. has played a role in this conflict and they've exacerbated it a lot and they've done things that arguably, um, you know, if they never did, like expanding NATO eastwards, maybe this whole thing would have never happened. But they also make sure to kind of, you know, pair the, those facts with Putin is also an imperialist. Putin also has, um, you know, selfish power driven goals. Uh, is that like, it, are those people that are leaning a little bit farther into the um, pro Russia, or I don't want to say pro Russia, but um, I guess the anti US imperialism side, like Aaron Maté, Blue, Max Blumenthal, Jackson Hinkle, etc. Are they, are they um, just is it, is it more of a disagreement between like rhetorical styles of talking about this issue or is it a substantive disagreement in terms of what we should actually do and and what are the roles being played by these uh big governments and figures involved sorry if that was i don't know if that was very clear no, no, it's clear what do you guys think um so as someone who does follow a lot of these figures that everyone has been mentioning uh I think the way I look at this is that a lot of these debates are ha- that are happening, they're, I mean, they're, they're pretty much useless, to be honest. I mean, like, they're, whether or not someone is a, an imperialist or an anti-imperialist, uh, to me, those are really just labels. I mean, like, there are clearly people uh, who just, like, carry water for the State Department. I mean, don't listen to them. <laughs> but, I mean, insofar as someone ha- shares at least a enough of your politics that you're listening to them i think you should just take what take the facts that they present mm-hmm. and you know listen to them integrate them into your own worldview uh the rest is really just just opinion like uh like whether or not um you know aaron mate is a tanky or not it really doesn't matter uh he he does a lot of great work right. and he presents a lot of facts in his pieces right. um caleb moffin who was mentioned earlier like, I, I, I mean, I, I think he's like an open tanky and sometimes I think he has awful takes, but he does good work on on some other things like he has good takes on other things. So I think you should listen to everyone, read every everything you can and, and make your own decision. But this whole anti-imperialist, are, do I have the correct decision? Do I have the correct opinions that that really just seems like virtue signaling rather than yeah. anything substantive like. It's not like it's not like we're currently in power and that we are uh, dividing into factions about how to run the state. It's like, no, all we're doing right now, all, all these media figures, what they're doing is 
collecting information and transmitting it to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, it shouldn't be a, a, like a team sport. Like, oh, you, you listen to uh, Ben Norton or you, you, you listen to, you read the gray zone. Oh, you must be a tanky. It's like, no, the gray zone has to listen to it all. You have to, or you literally won't know what's going on. Exactly. And and then like, if you have a bad take about something like, uh, like Caleb Maupin, for example, he was tweeting, um, he was tweeting about like all the fireworks in the, in the Donbass republics. And he was like, yeah, this is a good thing. Like Putin's going to go kill some Nazis. Like, yeah, it's like, Okay, well, clearly he has a very unnuanced take on this specific issue. But, I mean, when he talks about, like, uh, global development, different forms of Marxism around the world, like, okay, well, he presents useful information. And I think that that's useful. Um, I don't, I I, I think, I, I hate to say it, I hate to say it, but some of this seems to be like some sort of cancel culture on the left. Mm. Uh, yeah, I totally seems, agree with you. Yeah, it seems that, like, since that we are since we are so like disempowered since we don't really have any real power we focus on these tiny little uh spats about who has the correct opinions and who has the yeah. who has the best takes and it it's really all a distraction like that's it, it it's it's like someone has created a scarcity of virtue and everyone needs to prove how virtuous they are mm. by denouncing other people with bad takes well okay you can do that all day. It won't change shit. Like at some point you need to like distance yourself from those arguments and focus on a, how can you organize in your community to do something useful uh, outside of the internet and B what is the best array of sources and thinkers who you think gives you the best view of the world, regardless of whether or not they have like awful takes sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you know, I, I, that that yeah that i totally agree that that everything you said there really resonated with me because it seems like rather than engaging honestly and trying to like like it seems like when people are engaging in debate about this on the disagreements on the very specific uh issues like maybe the, the approach that us should like i know that there's some people that are saying that the us should not sanction russia at all and they should basically just allow this to happen completely um, and then there's others that say they should. And then the people that are saying they shouldn't are calling those that say they should sanction them imperialists. And like, it seems like it's become like, like you said, like a, like a cancel culture event where it's like, it's not like we're engaging each other's ideas and we're not questioning, questioning each other in like a intellectually honest way. It's mm-hmm. like, it's like, oh, you say one thing and now I'm going to call you an imperialist and say like how bad you are. Of an actor. That's why it was so hard to and research like, almost because I would see two people I respect engage and I would be like, oh, well, let me read the tweet thread to see who I agree with. But there was nothing substantive in the the exchange. Just like, you're an imperialist. You're carrying water from yeah. the State Department. Like, okay, this taught me nothing. Is forced to vote all over again. <laughs> well, some of us are making substantive arguments, I will say. <laughs> and I, I think a big zero names and force the vote. <laughs> well, that's like, I'm calling names. That's what it is. And mm. it's... It's frustrating because I, I still feel very much like an outsider in the political punditry. And honestly, the idea that I'm like starting to get into it is a little scary to me. And this conversation is kind of why. Um, not that we're participating in it, but just like it does seem that the conversation so quickly devolves into judging the person who's saying the opinion instead of actually discussing what they were saying. Like – Throwing these labels, I mean, even using the labels of right and left, I feel 
is completely mm-hmm. useless because you end up just dismissing people that you could find common ground on. Like I'm seeing a lot of people today being like, these Republicans are such hypocrites for being against war in Ukraine. And I'm sitting here being like, oh my God, there are Republicans that are against war in Ukraine. Fantastic. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so why do we have to break down into all of these little cliques and little groups and fight over the different labels and, and it's really frustrating to see all these people that I feel like I want to be friends with in the political world going back and forth at each other. Like, so I went on the Young Turks like a while ago and I was sitting between Jenk and Jimmy Dore and I liked them both. And then I just saw this crazy war happen and it was just like, oh no, it's all high school. And I just feel like we lose so much good debate time and people that could come together and have great conversations like this are now no longer speaking to each other because of these stupid labels they're throwing back and forth. I'm just trying really hard not to participate, I guess. And I think if more of us did that, maybe it could stop. Or is that just naive? It seems like conflict drives clicks, right? Like you're going to get more views on an article that you write or a video you make when you're attacking someone a bit more personally mm-hmm. than substantively. And like, like I, I wish that all these figures that are disagreeing on Twitter and kind of like burning each other back and forth, like, oh, you're an imperialist. Oh, you're, I don't know, you know, all this name calling and stuff and not really getting to the root of the disagreement. I wish that they would get in like a call in or something like this. Well, guys, I literally tried. Like, this is this is the thing. I, you know me on this show. I've had Nathan Robinson and Glenn Greenwald come together. My friends are always fighting on the internet. I have had, you know, when the whole, <laughs> when the whole, what was it, Ben Dixon came after me for not being a real black person or something. He wouldn't come <gasps> on the show, but uh, his friend who was on with him when he said that came on and we immediately had a lovely, like, tete-a-tete about it. I, you know, I hope to have Tim Black on soon. We've had it off camera you know, resolution when Ryan Grimm and I were publicly fighting, we talked about it offline and he came on the show and we worked it out over force the vote. Like, I don't know how many times I have to do this, but the difficulty is often one party or both does not want to come on. I, I suggested, you know, and I don't, I don't, I'm not saying this, you know, I didn't really push him and I was, you know, I understand that he works for a Senator and he's in a different position, but I suggested to Matt that he come on with someone like Abby Martin. Cause I knew what this, I knew how it was going to go down. I knew how it was going to be perceived. And I knew that I didn't have the capability to push back in the same way that someone from that world, from that political space would. And, you know, he preferred to go solo and I didn't push and it was fine. But I think we all would have benefited from a a, a conversation between him and Aaron Maté, you know, or Abby Martin or Max Blumenthal or Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald. Of course. And 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 instead of, and instead of, like, like, cause I think that a lot of times, even when you do get those people together, well, not, not always like you, I, I know Brie, you've had, um, a couple of those segments that I've been like, wow, this is amazing that Brie got these people together. And now it's like, it feels so mature instead of all this stupid shit going on on Twitter. Um, but I, I think even sometimes in those scenarios, like people go into those videos or those debates, like feeling like they need to prove themselves right rather than like come closer to some kind of truth. Right. Um, and, and, and I wish that, like, I wish that we would just steel man each other's arguments as much as we possibly, I mean, obviously, if someone says something, like, totally nuts, like, I don't, you, you know, obviously, like, QAnon stuff or whatever, then it's a little <laughs> bit hard to steel man them. But, like, I wish that people would just steel man each other's arguments and really try to 
um, and really try to work up to their conclusions instead of work backwards from them. Because I, I, it's so hard to get like a nuanced discussion or, or take on this Russia-Ukraine issue because it seems people are just so insistent on proving themselves right or something like making it personality based and I, yeah i don't know well thank you for that max and speaking of nuance takes i want to play you guys this clip for a little bit of levity uh jen you mentioned republicans who are against war in ukraine most famous among them is probably tucker carlson and he comes up in this clip this is from the ladies of the view today on the ongoing <laughs> conflict Oh, no. <laughs> I have to say, this thing in the Ukraine, yeah. it just, it's so disheartening. My stomach was all, like, tight mm-hmm. seeing Martha there, knowing that she's in the middle of it, yeah. and knowing, you know, people in the Soviet Union, the people... In Russia. In Russia. Right. They don't want this war. They don't <laughs> want this war. He wants it because he's trying to hold on. Yeah. I, I think what, what I also thought about was the fact that estimates are 50,000 Ukrainians will be dead or wounded. Yeah. And that this is going to start a humanitarian crisis, a refugee crisis in Europe. We're talking yeah. about five million people yeah. that that are going to be displaced. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's heartbreaking to hear what is going to happen. Yeah. Well, I'm scared of what's going to happen in, in Western Europe, too. Yeah. yeah. You know, you just you plan a trip. You want to go there. I want to go to Italy for four years. I haven't been able to make it because of of uh, the pandemic. And now this, you know, it's, yeah. it's like who's going to what's going to happen there? Yeah. yeah. Too. Yeah. I mean, and, yeah. and, you know, this guy, he's a singular sensation in a certain way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know that the whole that he has that much support in his country, yeah, like you say. And maybe that has to be addressed because we've seen this movie before. Yeah. In the last century. I know people keep asking, like, how does it affect me? Because it's natural to look at that. And the U.S. can't save everyone. But to see someone who we've been talking a lot about in the last Mm -hmm. six years and how he says things and he's dangerous and this. And now he is calling. People thought, you know, he'll back down when we all stand up. And he didn't. didn't. You know, that that should scare people, because if we're not checking on some of these places, when things come home to us, people aren't going to be checking on us. Yeah, but doesn't it scare you that people in the right in this country are on Putin's side? I mean, I can't <laughs> well, believe I don't it. understand. Nothing, you know, scared, nothing no, surprises me. Ma- what are they making a lot of money over there? Well, it's also, it's it's also few, this, these lies. There's a parallel yeah. there to the insurrection. People thought right. that they could just uh, take yeah. the election. And, and I think that's why you see so many people on the right thinking that this is okay. This is yeah. the fall of our democracy in, yeah. in the world. Well, in the world. We yeah. all have to keep in mind that, you know, it's what happens serious. on the yeah. planet affects us all. It affects us all, you know? And this starts with a little land grab, and who knows where it's going to stop. Yeah. And the entire world is after the sky. This isn't just us doing this. Mm-hmm. This is the whole nation, the yeah. whole world saying stop. So I believe 2 million people watch that every day. (laughs) I feel so much dumber. (laughs) First of all, everybody, take your European vacations now. (laughs) I'm in Portugal. It's fine. (laughs) Joy Behar making this about her, like trip to wine country is major LOLs for me. Like never change joy. Never change. The privilege in that statement, my God. <laughs> oh, and then it, it became Tucker Carlson is anti-war because there's a Republican ideology of taking and they're takers, just like they tried to take the election and there's a straight line to one six. 
I don't even know what to do. I mean, oh, so dumb. <laughs> Um, oh well, I had I ha- I heard it, so you had to hear it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a common that, that that's more common than you think. Like that's, I, I'm glad I don't have to like hear that hear that nonsense all the time. But I mean, if you want to engage with like the general public, these are the arguments that you're going to have to like fucking face, I guess. But like people people really turn everything into uh, into like a. a us or them, like okay, the Republicans—they're with Putin. All of a sudden, it's not even—it's not even a question of like, what are they against? Like, what are they for? Like, I—I didn't—I don't think I watched the whole Tucker Carlson segment, but I mean, like, it seemed that he was just offering the the standard libertarian critique of U.S. Uh, interventionism. Which right, the, the worst person in the cool. world can be right occasionally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like Tucker Carlson, and, and it's embarrassing that like an actual uh, I'm comfortable calling him like a white nationalist. Like it's embarrassing that he's one of the only people on mainstream television who will say these things, mm-hmm. and now they're making it uh, they're making it toxic. They're making uh, yep. they're saying that anyone who uh, ha- anyone who questions the U.S. role. In, in in having a hand in whatever's going on in Ukraine, anyone who questions that must be pro-Putin or must be pro-Republican. Yeah, I'd, I'd argue that that's a much bigger concern than us um, uh, doing doing an internal left McCarthy search for whom amongst us are tankies. <laughs> right, right. The lesson uh, is you know, that people on the of... left who are sorry, I was going to make a stupid comment. Go ahead, Jen. Make no, tell us your stupid joke, yeah, Stephen. Now I want to hear it. Yeah, I want to hear it too. <laughs> oh, well, now it's not that funny. It's not worth the lead up. But what I was going to say is that people in fighting on the left are clearly not watching the view enough because they realize that you know, you know, the leftist that they're pissed off at, you know, isn't the worst person out there. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I'm sorry, Stephen. I set you up. And Jen, what were you, what were you going to say? I love that you had that on deck. That's fantastic. Perfect. Perfect. So this whole time we've been talking, I've been clicking. I've had it on mute, obviously, but I've been clicking between French media and German media and Al Jazeera and just all the foreign stuff. And even the CNN over here is different. And um, so to even hear you talk about what's going on on Fox News, where People have an opinion about what their newscaster thinks about this. Like, I don't know what any of these people think about Ukraine. Like, this is the second time when a war has started that I have been in Europe because I was living in Germany when um, we started Iraq. Mm. And I am in such a different media environment that when I'm like dreading leaving because I feel just so informed Mm-hmm. And the idea that, like, you, you, the experience you guys are having right now is just so different from me. Like, one of these stations, they ran it a few times, but it's just 10 minutes of footage from the day with no commentary. Like, you just hear what's going on in the footage. That's it. France 24 hasn't run a commercial the entire day because mm-hmm. a war was started today. Um, it's just so... The Applebee's commercials? oh i saw that i was enraged but that's that's precisely the thing right like the media even from these little snippets that i'm seeing on twitter i know what you guys are experiencing you're experiencing heightened drama lots of commercials and punditry 
in place of news. And so I think a lot of these opinions that we are talking about, that we're experiencing in our conversations, I think it's being shaped by that media environment because even being physically closer to the situation here, there's a calm here that's, it's just nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I honestly, like, well, you keep going. <laughs> no, I'm done. <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, uh, I'm, I'm, Working on a, a piece looking at like NPR coverage of of like the the run up to this war, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, so I'm listening to a lot of uh, they have they have several reporters over there and they're like interviewing people in Ukraine, interviewing people in Russia and in Germany, and almost everyone they interview is like, uh, okay, well we'll see we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, I'm stocking up on more food. Yeah, but then they interview people in America, uh, and they're like. I'm scared. I'm worried that, like, you know, Hitler's coming and it's going to destroy the world and everything. And it's like just that that just shows you how different the media environment is. One Uh, popular pundit I saw on Twitter today uh, said he ordered iodine tablets. Oh, my God. Well, I I think she was like, are we going to get are we on the brink of a nuclear war? How scared should I be? Like. My sister's not insane, so I'm just wondering, like, is that, are they talking about the possibility of nukes? Like, how crazy is the media over there right now? I mean, like, I don't, look, honestly, I did make a joke to producer Ben today about how I just moved into this apartment that has all these new electric appliances, and (laughs) I won't even be able to open my door. Unlock my door if the power goes out. Because <laughs> I was listening to your episode, Jim, and you were talking about the cyber warfare implications of the information leak last year. Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, goddamn, I've got one of those lockless key fob things now. But so, yeah, I, I do think that some of it is just kind of tongue in cheek. Because okay, people, you know, joke when they're sad. It's oh, gallows humor. Jokes are coming. <laughs> yeah. I do wonder how. Like, I am hearing this theme of people being very, very scared. Um, and, I mean, I understand being scared, but I also, I'm, I don't know, I'm not that scared. And I think a part of it could be that I'm in Europe and I'm being fed different information in a different way. I think that's right. Also, yeah. I think that Europeans are just, I, I, as someone who grew up overseas, I, I moved back to America six months before 9-11. I remember okay, when so 9-11 happened. you grow up in? Uh, we were in Saudi Arabia for two years and in Kenya for six years. Oh, Fun fact. Right, uh, cool. I went to high school with Thomas Greenfield's daughter. <laughs> the, wow. the UN ambassador was in Kenya at the time. And they were like one of the only other black American families at the school. LOL. I, I, yeah, I'm in league with the State Department. Whatever. Uh, so, I knew uh, it. I knew it. <laughs> when, I, when, I did, when I did come back to the States and 9-11 happened almost immediately – I remember observing that my emotional reaction to it, you know, we lived in New York, you know, I went to high school down on like 24th and FDR, you know? So I, I remember having a very emo- different emotional reaction to it to people around me, because I think there is this American expectation that nothing bad will ever happen here that I didn't have. Our embassy was bombed in Kenya in 1998. I knew people who had died in that bombing. You know, that was very, felt very proximate to me because it's a much smaller community. And I personally didn't lose anybody in 9-11, and it felt more attenuated from me. But I observed people around me. People in California were mourning as though it had been personally affected, you know, personally affected them. And I think it's because we really do live all the way over here by ourselves in this veil of safety. 
And we're not used to the idea that you could be hit with a bomb or be a victim of terrorism or these kinds of things that most other parts of the world live with, even like carjackings and stuff like that that are fairly regular in other parts of the world are like kind of catastrophic in our minds. I hear, and I'm not saying that's like a bad thing. I wish everyone could live with that sense of safety, but it definitely does affect, I think our community's response to these sorts of events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that reminds me of, uh, I can't remember which book I read it in. It might, might've been one of Woodward's um, Obama books, but uh, Obama's like meeting with the Pakistani ambassador and like, and they're talking about 9-11. And uh, the ambassador is wondering, like, why America went so crazy after one terrorist attack. Like, yes, it was very big. But, I mean, like, the, in that part of the world, like, there are, there, there, there are a lot more uh, uh, used to that sort of thing appearing in the news. And it's less of, like, a, a, a massive... Uh, it's less of a, a national shock, uh, so to speak. And, and so, like, that is because America has this sense of security. It's because we've never been uh, bombed. Like, the, the first time bombs were dropped on America, wasn't it, wasn't it the Tulsa Massacre? Oh, I like, thought, yeah. We dropped them on ourselves. Yeah. yeah. We dropped them on ourselves. Like, and, and like, we've never, we've never had to experience any sort of, like, real danger. And so there's a sort of chauvinism that comes out of that kind of safety. Uh, like when we, when we talk about any sort of violence happening overseas, uh, like it's so easy to disconnect from that. Like, I, I don't know. It, it just seems like that, that security breeds a, a, a kind of, I don't know. There, there's definitely a word for what, uh, what I'm trying to describe. No, I, I think chauvinism gets close. And also this, this feeling that people have, like the view, those view women saying, you know, if we don't, if we don't nip this in the bud, they're coming for us. If we don't, if we don't defend Ukraine, when someone comes for us, the world won't defend us. There is this sense that, you know, if, if you value your safety so much because you've never had a paper cut, I, I don't right. want to minimize you know, horrible things that happen, acts of terrorism and stuff. But if you, if you are so protective of your safety because you've been hermetically, your bubble boy and even a paper cut would bring you to your knees, then that means you're going to be willing to do anything and escalate to crazy heights in order to keep even the possibility of risk happening to you. It's like the TSA shit, you know, we're all still taking yeah. off our shoes because even the possibility is enough. It's, it's sort of like how after World War II, uh, the United States was convinced that the Soviet Union was going to come for them because they, they really couldn't fathom the idea that a country that had gone through three wars and lost like 20 million people, mm-hmm. uh, they, they couldn't even comprehend that sort of destruction. So they were like, oh, no, they're just like us. They they want to expand. They want to go. They want to go crazy. Um, it's like you're you're missing a very critical aspect of how yeah, it's projection. Uh, the rest of the world thinks. Yeah. Well, let's let's hear from um, Jam. Um, thank you for that, by the way, Max. That was a stimulating line of questioning. What's on your mind, Jam? Hey, can you guys hear me? Yes. Yes. Awesome. Um, first off, I just want to say, uh, like, love the podcast, long time listener, and glad to be on here with you. Thank you. But, um, big thing for me is like, um, and, and talks about this is like, what's the point of having like allies and like enemies because um, Ukraine isn't like a part of like NATO, right? So, mm-hmm. but what's 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 be the point of of us like of us risking any more like type of like military 
no conflict with Russia for somebody that's not that's not you know that's not even like an ally. No, I don't. I wouldn't feel comfortable. You know, if this if this escalation continues to grow, I wouldn't feel comfortable. You know, like sending sending any types of like troops to fight for you know to fight for like a nation that's not you know that's like not even you know in big like association with us. And then if that's like the case, are we just are we just doing this just to like you know like just to fuck with Putin, just to like antagonize him? I mean, because like there's no I don't I don't see the big game of you know trying to uh, defend trying to defend like Ukraine in this in the situation. Like I got all love for the people and everything, but at, but you know at the end of the day, like what, what do we have to gain you know over like continuous uh, escalation? That's a sixty four thousand dollar question. Yeah, man, and I've been listening listening to you like ask it, and I get I, I feel like I feel like I feel your frustration with like nobody's trying to answer that question directly. It's like people are afraid to say like are afraid to say like yeah we should be like more so isolationist in this like certain circumstance. Like people just don't want to say the thing that they feel like is the right answer. You know? It's like the accelerationism conversation. Like no, everyone exactly. knows that it's bad to be called an accelerationist, but we we go we go round and round and round on these episodes. Like okay, but if we keep doing the same thing, exactly. <laughs> are, you know, how much do we ju- continue to act in a way that justifies the system and makes it seem like everything's okay and that we really do live in a democracy and we keep voting and we elect the first black president and everything seems like it's progress? You know, like isn't that at a certain point holding up the system, making it pretending like it's still working? Doesn't that? Isn't that an effect making it a longer period of time until we actually get a working system? Exactly. Yeah, I, I, oh my God, we're trying to tell my, my parents that about voting Democrats. Like saying, like saying. Like, yeah, and, and, it, and it's hard. <laughs> like I also understand the ethical concerns of saying, like, I don't mm-hmm. know that causing this bad outcome and doing the accelerationism is actually going to create the backlash that gets us to a better place. It might just make, make things worse and people are going to die and suffer, and that's on me. And I understand why nobody wants to be responsible for that. And the same. Mm-hmm. In, in this case, there are real human beings that are going to suffer and die as a consequence mm. of our actions one way or the other. And it feels like it's that trolley problem where no one wants that's to be the exactly. one with the hand on the lever. Yeah, so, like that's, so nothing that's gets thing. done. Yeah. You know, like that's the thing with this one because, like, like, we already said, like, okay, we're going to do, like, sanctions. Like, Putin already don't give a fuck about the sanctions. Like, like you know, like, I don't, I, don't really like, I don't really care about the sanctions and shit. You know, so, like, what's, like what else are we going to do? Like you know, outside of like further like uh, make going towards like a hot war, and like we don't want to you know we don't want to do it. Like no, neither side really wants to go into like a hot war with each other. Like it, it means for like the U.S. and Russia. So like what's like what's the whole point? Like so like is it just to antagonize? It seems like it's just like to be ballsy and antagonize like Putin. Like you know like like what's what's like, like there's no there's no real you know like point for it. And I and I don't like like analogy people bring up for saying like. Yeah, certain times people bring up saying that, um, you know, even in certain like wars, you might want to have like a moral obligation to like intervene with, like bringing up like World War Two. But like, like even like World War Two and all that shit was going on, like we didn't really like hop in there until after we got hit. Mm-hmm. Like we were perfectly fine and perfectly cool with that, uh, you know, the, the war going on in the other half of the, of the planet, you know. And like, pretending like a genocide like, wasn't going cool. on. Yeah, exactly. We were, we were cool until, you know, until we got hit. So like what's like and then you know okay yeah now and then we had even more of a even more of a like reason to jump in earlier than we did like World War Two but we still didn't until like it was on our you know like on our shores so like if Russia was talking about going into Alaska all right sure all all about it but like that's not that's not the case and nobody really thinks like Russia's going to you know, attack any like uh, NATO ally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a an an article I read in the Wall Street Journal 
uh, was published by a guy who works for the Atlantic Council, which is, you know, a, a NATO think tank, like it's the de facto NATO think tank. Uh, it's called The Strategic Case for Risking War in Ukraine. And I think this is, this is one of the best, uh, <laughs> this is one of the best explanations for like Biden's pol or like the, the current policy like that we took. Uh, it, it's, it's basically saying that no, the U.S. shouldn't negotiate. Um, because both outcomes are good for the United States. If Putin backs down, he looks, you know, extremely weak. That's good for the West. He loses face in his, among his own people. Maybe he, he loses, loses a, loses a lot of credibility. But if he went to war, well, A, that would reinvigorate NATO. It would give it a, you know, a, a good reason to exist in the eyes of Europeans. It would like re-legitimize NATO. Um, and it, you know, it would strengthen U.S. military hegemony, yada, yada, yada. Um, and it's also uh, it would crush the Russian economy because we didn't we now have an excuse to send in crushing sanctions. So, uh, I, in fact, I, I think I've heard people talking. I think Biden in his speech today talked about like complete deindustrialization of Russia, like uh, something to that effect. And that's what's going on. So you knock out a major uh, regional competitor in this world. economic system, And thirdly, you could spark an insurgency in Ukraine, which would bog down the Russians. Uh, essentially the same way we did in Afghanistan. You know, uh, big news, mm -hmm. Afghanistan. I'm sure you all know what that is. Um, so those are the reasons why we should not negotiate at all one bit, because it's a win-win for us. And that to me seems like what's going on. Like, it was a ploy to antagonize people. Uh, yeah, I don't even really even feel like it's even, like, a win-win even still, because let's say we... um do more sanctions, yeah, not like real time. Like do more sanctions stuff, like on Russia. Like we don't, nobody's like talking about like the European angle, like because like Germany's like rely relying on Russia a lot for like energy. So like, how is that going like do a ripple effect with all like the rest of like Europe? Like we don't, like, we we're not hearing any really like here in the U.S. Really hearing any of like European like perspective. And then kind of like how you alluded to earlier, uh, Bree, kind of make you feel like. Hey, this, this guy Trump is kind of right about some shit. <laughs> like, how I mean, don't NATO's say it too loud. <laughs> <laughs> like, none but of you... NATO is pulling the rest of like they wait on it. Like, how come I, we haven't he, like here heard about you know what's what's the uh, the German perspective or what's like the uh, the uh, the UK's like perspective like on this? And this is going on in their continent. We're like we're on the other half of the planet, <laughs> you know. Yeah, Jen, you were you alluded to this in your episode a little bit. Um, there's been discussions about the extent to which Biden is has been willing to sanction the uh, Nord Two. What's it called? The pipeline Nord Stream Two. Nord Stream Two pipeline, which takes uh, um, connects uh, takes Russian oil to Germany, and Germans want this and rely on it. And there's been some conversation about how, like, oh, they're like sanctioning it enough to like say they're sanctioning it, but not enough to stop them constructing it. Well, the construction on it's already done. Um, and the thing is that, like, it's never been in operation. So the reason it's Nord Stream 2 is it's right next to Nord Stream 1. Mm -hmm. So they're getting the gas. And this is just, like, a loss of the potential gas. But it's not like Germany's being cut off from the supplies that they're using right now. And the fact that, like, the certification has been delayed for so long... Um, the cancellation of that, like, it's really not that big of a deal. Um, the thing, like, the buzz out here in Europe is unless the EU and the U.S. all decide together to sanction the SWIFT payment system and kick Russia off of that, 
that all of these piecemeal sanctions are really not going to do the type of damage that they've been threatening to do. Um, I don't know if Biden is asking for them to do that, but the EU had a meeting today. And so the, the buzz for the last few hours here has been all of the different factors that are going back and forth in these meetings that they're having here in the EU. Like, like the French, they don't really want to go too hard after Russian fossil fuels because their gas company total has a lot of contracts and a lot of business in Russia. Then of course, Mm -hmm. Germany, they get hit the hardest by all of these sanctions. So they're kind of like, out of everyone, they're the ones being like, oh, let's really be careful about what we do here. And so Biden's getting up there in front of the American people saying, we are united. But over here, they know damn well, like, no, we're not. <laughs> yeah, I heard Germany's pissed. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Germany's pissed because they're like, this isn't our fight. China's pissed because they're like, Russia, this isn't our fight. Everyone's well, pissed. Like, go ahead. Sorry. The EU has like a whole other level of pissed because that phone call, I didn't play it in the episode, but like you might actually remember that phone call from 2014 because in the phone call, in Victoria Newland says, fuck the EU. And so she had to apologize for saying fuck the EU. And the context behind that is that the Europeans were not behind this whole idea of forcing a transitional government. They didn't want the coup to begin with. And so she was like, you know, we're going to put these people in the government and it is what it is and fuck the EU. And so she apologized for that. But they remember that history. And so when they look at what's happening now and the sanctions, how they're going to hurt Europe economically in a way that like they just won't hurt America. um, Of course, they're pissed off. And so behind I mean, it's not even necessarily behind closed doors. It's happening in the the EU halls of power, but because the U.S. media doesn't cover what's going on here, I think America is missing that whole part of this story that is very much known here, that like NATO is not as united as they seem. Yeah, like so, it's, that goes like more to the point. Though, like, it just seems like a you're more like a European like problem, but like the U.S. is the mainly the ones that's you know trying to like escalate this and like. I'm not trying to go to war because Joe Biden trying to have big dick energy. Like, like we, we, don't, we don't need to have one because it doesn't. Like, there is no, there is no logical reason I've, I've heard. You know that makes sense. You know, because to, to, to keep escalating, you know, to keep escalating this. But like, I can't, I can't find it. I'm sorry, I'm still. I laughing. think you said it perfectly. That's exactly what this feels like. <laughs> well, I'm gonna have to tweet that. All right. Uh, yeah. So we were talking about sanctions. Thank, thank you for that uh, jam. I'm going to have Gabrielle come up next. But first, I want to ask this question because we're talking about sanctions. And I want to read a comment from the YouTube video of today's episode. The left, before yesterday, I was watching a Kyle Kalinske stream and he was saying, look, of course, as leftists, we don't like sanctions. It hurts the people, but these are targeted. And even at that time, I had some skepticism that you can really have things that are so targeted. This commentator says, On the question of targeted sanctions, I'm Zimbabwean and my country has come under these targeted sanctions. The problem uh, is that in many countries, the economy is under control of these individuals who are targeted. Most of the banks in my country are owned by people under targeted sanctions, and it means ordinary people are affected because the institutions they use are under sanctions. I don't know about Russia or Iran, but I'm sure it's a similar situation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when we're talking about the slippery slope and how there are some so-called tankies that were frustrated with the positions that maybe someone like Kyle was taking, I think that that's a legitimate concern. It's not that I'm going to sit here and call Kukulski an imperialist. I, you know, that's not accurate in my view. But I do think there is this way that we can kind of, you know, 
be seduced by some what feels like to be moderate responses that are perhaps, you know, proportionate to what's going on in a different part of the world that we might disagree with. But without this principle standard that I keep trying to come back to, it's very easy to say, okay, a little bit of sanctions here turns into a lot of sanctions there. And also we're like, you know, say it's a limited sanction, but how can we know? Sanctions are also a total pain in the ass to take off once they're on. I mean, look at Cuba, for example. I mean, it's just it's just really hard to take sanctions off once they're applied. And I also, I mean, I worry that it's too much process focus on what our response to be punitively. I, I just worry that, again, I mean, if you're talking about, you know, diplomacy, sticks and carrots, I, I worry that there's not enough incentives being provided to for Putin to alter his behavior. I think it's just all punitive based and as a result you're kind of running into these conflicts that Jen just brought up with the uh, you know inter NATO disagreement about, you know, how to sanction it, what to sanction. Yeah. Don't play okay, the well... laugh tracking again. <laughs> you have to after you prepared. Guys, <laughs> 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 I've got a I've got a whole diversity of, of sounds on my board. You just give me a chance. I haven't deployed this one in a while, but it's one of my favorites. Stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. <laughs> All right, that if you get a really bad collar, you got to use that. <laughs> There's no bad collars. <laughs> Gabrielle, prove my point. Show, show them how wonderful the collars are. No pressure. Hello? Hello. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess they're good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, about to prove you wrong, but uh, let's say like um, your Matt does interview. Um, I like the fact that you did a panel to kind of rectify uh, <laughs> what happened there. But I mean, I like the fact that you add him because now we can understand better Bernie's perspective and why it was like on foreign policy was like democratic light or something. Like it was not where I wanted him to be, but. One of the things that you didn't speak about in this panel and with uh, Matt Duss is the, uh, you kind of dismissed it, the Nazi, the Nazi question. Like to me, that's actually a big deal. And it's mm. really a big part of the of Russians, I mean, of Putin's mindset because look, 30 million people, 30 million Russians died during World War II to fight Nazis. And then what, since 2014, I mean, uh, some Nazi militias, which have been integrated in, formally in the Ukrainian army, are harassing people in the uh, self-proclaimed um, republics in the eastern part of the rich reign. And, I mean, a lot of people died. And so, and they also, most of them are also um, Russian citizens. So if, if uh, Russia doesn't do anything, they basically allow... Nazis to attack their own citizens. That was unacceptable. And you have that on top of 30 years of NATO expanding where they promised not to expand. Like, uh, that it makes no sense. Like, they, like, I don't agree with the fact that uh, Putin, like, attacked basically the entire Ukraine. I thought he would, like, annex east, the, the eastern part of it, like he did for Crimea. But still, like, I completely understand this. And also, like, I'm a former military member. And mm -hmm. if I had the crystal ball and would told me that I'm, I'm Canadian, and at some point in time, Canada would support a government with straight-up Nazis in their army, I would not have enrolled. So I'm really, really, like, I've never been so ashamed of being Canadian right now. 
And I don't get it. I, I don't understand why, for some reason, oh, having like possibly some racist people in the convoy is unacceptable. Putin is so wrong to attack Nazis. Like it, it makes no sense. And you don't speak about this in the panel, and you didn't with Matt Dust. I know that Matt Dust is also part Ukrainian. That makes sense. His family is part from Ukraine. But to me, that's a big deal. That it's not really approach. I mean, that's interesting because I, I will confess that for me, it's not. I mean, this is an argument I get into a lot. I've talked about it on the show. I operate under the assumption that a lot of people are racist all over the place. If I ever were to join the American military, it would be under full knowledge that there are very, very, very many, very, very racist people in it. Um, if there is a world war and we have genuine, you know, like we are under nuclear assault and we are like boots on the ground and actually doing this thing, that I know that people are dying, that are fighting and dying for my freedoms, many of them will in fact be racists. And that just kind of is what it is. I don't, I personally am not making decisions, political decisions based on whether the cohort is racist or not. Now you can say that Nazis, you know, Nazis is a different kind of a thing. Fair enough. Especially in a country where there's like a political context, um, where there's, you know, a, you know, political organizations of Nazis, not just random, you know, unaffiliated racists, you know, uh, But go ahead. Yeah. What do you guys think? Well, so I made a conscious decision when I was making my episode to not use the word Nazi. Um, I know that it's been reported widely that people that were on the Maidan, um, you know, that there were Nazis as a part of that faction. But I guess like maybe it's my own. I don't know if it's ignorance, but like I feel like Nazi has a World War Two German political party connotation and that the word Nazi has been applied to so many things now that it's almost kind of lost some of its meaning for me. And for me to go and say that the people that are in the Ukrainian government are Nazis, having never met a single one of them, not really knowing what they believe, like kind of going back to what we were saying before, that it's just like, I don't know who the Ukrainians are. I can't speak for them. So to go and say, especially eight years after the coup, that this is a government full of Nazis, that's just such a... Um, Reductionist. No, yeah. for, okay, hold on a second. For your information, because I don't think you know what you're talking about, there are people right Ga- now... Gabrielle, let's, okay, hold on, let's hold on be... A this is I mean, let you talk, Gabrielle. I just want us to be polite to our panelists. Okay, you're right. Okay, but right now, there are... You have military members in the Ukrainian army with a SS-inspired sigil. Okay. This is very easy to find. But that doesn't mean that everyone in the military can be described as a Nazi. And when we're talking talking in broad terms in public, I have to be very careful about how I'm branding people. And I'm not comfortable with branding everyone in the Ukrainian government as a Nazi. I never said that. That's not the point. I said, oh, I, so, so what are you saying, Gabriel? Oh. Go ahead. I said, in the military, okay, it used to be militia, SS-inspired militia with an SS-like sigil. Not exactly the same, right? but it is directly related to it. It's unmissable, uh, unmistakable. They have yeah, been tolerated in the, the Ukrainian military. They've been tolerated, and they've been harassing Ukrainian separatists 
for years, since 2014. This is a very historical fact. And also, let's say we didn't discuss the Odyssea massacre. I mean, they've, they set a trap. They ambushed people in a building, separatists, and they, they burned them alive. And that was not investigated by the UN. Like, this is awful. You really need to talk about this. Yeah. Okay. okay. I, I think the best way to, uh, to understand this issue is to, to put it, to put the, the exact number of these Nazis in context. I mean, I, 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 I I'm, I'm comfortable calling them Nazis. Like, if they're going to fly like Nazi flags and use Nazi symbols, I'll call them Nazis. But the Azov Battalion is relatively small compared to the entire Ukrainian military. Now, yes, the Ukrainian military does tolerate them, and they do, you know, arm them, and they do endorse, uh, at least to some extent, a good portion of their view, and, and that is condemnable. But I don't think that using them as uh, a justification for Putin's actions uh, is, is I, I, I think that's incorrect. Right. Putin said that. Putin said that several times. He, you know, he's talking about the denazification of, Ukraine and like yeah he's making public statements he wants to sell a war to his people that's true and there are Nazis there and I'm sure that Putin doesn't like them however the the whole in, the entire situation is far bigger than Nazis like if there were no Nazis there right and you know you still had a breakaway republic and you still had the Ukrainian uh you know army like shelling civilians and you still had a he still had everything there, but, you know, there were no Nazi flying people there. I think things would be exactly the same, because I think this is about broader geopolitical context than just a vendetta against the, uh, uh, against a few, uh, against a few Nazis. Uh, okay, you're correct, but you didn't speak earlier in this panel, maybe I missed something, but you didn't talk about the fact that for eight, for since 2014, the people in the East and their self-proclaimed republics, they've been attacked by the Ukrainian military. And this is that entire so, Ukrainian military that's attacking them. Not all of them are Nazis. If the Ukrainian know, military, that, that's the Ukrainian my point. military I just, attacking I just them, your, it's not the fact that they're Nazis. I just okay. that I agreed with you. I just look at me. I'm just I'm cu- I'm just curious because it seems to me there's is the implication that you don't think we care about. Nazis or were sympathetic to not like I don't I don't quite understand. Okay, my point is you didn't really now we did because I kind of forced the conversation. But for for a long time, like for since for eight years, uh, the um, the racial file people like the people in the South Republic in the east of Ukraine they associate a lot with Russia. Most of them are also Russian citizens, and they've been attacked for eight years. A lot of people died. And it's not, it hasn't been investigated by the UN, even though there's like a very famous incident, like I said in Odyssey, where a lot of people were burned alive. So that's really like, for Russia, that's very insulting. You have some Russian citizen next to their border being attacked constantly and nobody says anything. The UN doesn't investigate it. That's a really, like, that would turn me nuts. Like if I was Russian, that would really insult me. I just, I, I understand where you're coming from, Gabrielle, but there, I, I will say this as the person, you know, the person who hosts this podcast, I get a lot of comments that are like, why didn't you ever talk about this? It must mean that you are directly oppositional to my position on this. I never said the word Ukraine on this podcast until yesterday, today. I never said the word Tigray until I did an episode on Tigray because a bunch of people were mad at me about not talking about Tigray. 
I do two shows a week. I'm really sorry if in the hour that I'm talking to somebody, everything that people want to talk about don't come up. I really am sorry. I'm not saying that sarcastically. I am not a daily show. There are every day I think, gosh, I wish I could talk about that. I, uh, gosh, I missed that. I'm sorry I'm not perfect. I'm no. sorry that I'm not more knowledgeable. I don't mean that glibly. I, I genuinely wish I had the foreign policy expertise of the people on this panel and could, could do a better job interviewing Matt Dessett. I apologize. I'm sorry that I did not cover the breadth of topic that you would have liked to have heard it cover. But I assure you, there are many, many other content creators who are much more able than I in this, in this area. And I fully respect if you want to listen to their commentary because they get into these subjects. But I had an opportunity to, to interview Matt Dess that a lot of other people don't have because, he, you know, I have a, not a particularly close relationship, but some relationship with him from the Bernie campaign. And he was willing to do it. And I thought there was a benefit in getting someone like him who informs Bernie on the record on some of these positions. And I did the best I can. And I'm sorry that I didn't do a, a, a good enough job for your standards. No, I'm sorry. No, that, uh, like I said, like it didn't, <laughs> that wasn't an attack on the Matt Dust thing. Like, but for now, like it's been two and hours, two hours and a half of this panel where three people are supposed to be experts on Ukraine and didn't well, no. talk about no, that. No, we're not. I, I, I didn't hold yeah. it. I'm not trying to put them in that position either. They're gendered in an excellent, well researched episode on Ukraine, a couple of them, in fact. Okay. You know, Bryce wrote an excellent article about Ukraine, and Stephen is a foreign policy expert, broadly speaking. And then we're having a conversation, and I would hardly suggest there are many things that haven't come up. We barely talked about the Minsk two, we uh, Minsk two. We barely talked about a lot of things because it's a two-hour conversation, and there's thousands of years of world history, and it is what it is. So I just really wish you would depersonalize it a little bit. All you had to say was, "Hey, can we talk about the Nazis? We talk about the Nazis, and then we can all have a good time talking about the Nazis, and then move on." You know, this okay, didn't have to be like an attack. But no, you don't have to feel attacked. Like. For me, like, it's awkward, too. Like, I don't have a very fancy microphone. I don't hear myself. Like, I'm, I'm expressing myself in my second language. Like, it's very hard to tell if I'm being aggressive or not. <laughs> That's well, not I appreciate point. that. Look, all, all okay. is well, Gabrielle. I just, I'm a little defensive about it. I will confess. I'm not putting this on the panelists. I get a million comments a day that make it out like, you must not care about this. Oh, you have a secret conspiratorial perspective because you only focused no, on this and not that. And you it's like, holy shit, I am one 36 year old woman and who's no, finally managed to buy, a, to move in, rent a one bedroom apartment, who's just trying to wash her clothes and, and, and go to the gym semi regularly and live her life. Can, can I, can I just, can just, I would put to everyone, make a suggestion to me and I will happily agree to it. It does not have to be this adversarial relationship. I am not your enemy. <laughs> no, no, that's wasn't the point. Sorry, I didn't mean to be a anyway. All right, no, okay, I, okay. I appreciate you, Gabrielle, and yeah, thank you right. for your insights. Yeah, right, see. All right, Sylvester, what's on your mind? Goddamn, <laughs> block is kind of hot. <laughs> now, don't instigate, Sly. <laughs> <laughs> kind of feel privileged i was gonna come on and say how can we trojan horse your way onto the view and that's the place i was talking about and you know y'all trying to talk about something else <laughs> well i don't know how to trojan horse i i alluded to this i don't know if it was the last one but a daytime talk show asked me to come on and do a black history month segment and i basically got cut because i all my answers in the pre-interview i mean 
they, you know, I was saying things about the Biden administration and what he could do to help black people. And they just wanted me to talk about, you know, black people in mental health and how we just have to meditate more to make our student loan go- loans go away or something. Uh, where, uh, where was it? Or uh, uh, I guess you shouldn't say. No, because I'm still trying to get on there. <laughs> <laughs> the Trojan horse is still alive. Okay. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm not here. I come in peace, everybody. I'm just go ahead and put that out there. Um, before I ask my question. Um, but then I'm, I'm wondering, uh, do you all feel that uh, everything going, because, you know, when I kind of see, again, I'm not, poly, you know, foreign policy expert either, um, just to put out that disclaimer as well. So um, is there, um, I mean, it kind of looks like we have, you know, imperialist policing, imperialist, that's kind of like the situation, like broadly speaking. Um, do you feel like this um, is a time where we can, redirect some energy on the United States uh, in terms of just making more people aware of all the imperialistic shit that we do and how we kind of, you know, how we create a lot of what these, like the environments where these tragedies begin to occur or, you know, talk about the fact that we just bombed, you know, Somalia yesterday. We put sanctions on, um, you know, uh, Afghanistan and we're starving millions of people and freezing the assets and things like that. Since now we're actually talking about foreign policy and how it affects the world, do you feel like there is, uh, you feel like right now is a time where we can coalesce some energy on some introspection on the United States role in the world? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, like 100%. I mean, like ex- exposing like uh, blatant contradictions like like the one that we're experiencing now, like uh, like the Ukrainians are worthy victims, but the you know the Yemenis don't matter. Uh, fuck all. Like exposing those contradictions, like now is one of the most important times that you can actually do that, and it actually be relevant to the like you know the news of the day. Like I like well, after I wrote that article, you know, sent it to you know mom, parents, like she sent it to other people. Uh, there's a hunger for this sort of knowledge about like what's the real context going on behind this. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are more receptive than ever to that sort of message. And so I, I absolutely think that this is a perfect opportunity. You'd love to see it. And that's another reason why I think some of this left infighting is a little counterproductive, because this is a time to do a full court press on a lot of these issues, including why we're letting the right dominate our non-interventionist narrative. You know, mm-hmm. um, like, I also, all the leftists got together and like, decided on a, on, on a hashtag and got it trending. And then so CNN would have to like mention it. Like if it was like American hypocrisy, uh, hashtag so, something like that. I'm not, a, mm-hmm. I'm not a marketing expert, but um, like, it, like imagine if we like set aside the, the really dumb petty differences, you know, arguing about definitions of imperialism, like is Lenin's definition right or not? Like, like, <laughs> like, <laughs> Hey guys, yes. Putin is doing this horrible thing. Look at what we're doing in Yemen. Look at how we're look at how we're like helping these Saudi planes bomb like weddings and stuff over there in Yemen. Look at look at what uh, Israel did in Gaza last year. Like look at that. Like you say you don't like that in Ukraine. Look at it over here. Look, we're doing it right here. The first place is, you know, look look at the man in the mirror, uh, so to speak. Like like I, this is a perfect time. It's the perfect time. Like. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I was I was gonna play us out with 
in a different song selection, but now I feel like I have to play us out tonight with Man in the Mirror. I was about to say, uh, I was singing. <laughs> I, me too. We're going to make a change. <laughs> don't, don't get me started. Nobody wants to hear me get started. On that literal note, though, I want to provide Jen an exit because she is like, what, seven, eight hours ahead? It is 2.30 a.m. Ooh, mon dieu. <laughs> All right. You have been so generous with your time. But before you go, I really want to make sure that our listeners know where to find your show and that even if they never listen to another episode, your Ukraine coverage has been extraordinary, both this most recent episode and the one you did, was that last year? Um, oh, I've done a few. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, tell people uh, where to find you and how to support you. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, the show is called Congressional Dish, and I do provide all my sources on congressionaldish.com, and you can find it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere that podcasts are found. Oh, and actually the Ukraine episode, one of my amazing listeners put visuals to that episode, so it's actually available on our YouTube page, which you can find at congressionaldish.tv hmm. if you actually want to see the testimony and see the sources as they come up. It's a beautiful video. I'm so proud of it. it it's so good because I, I am not being hyperbolic. Jen does the homework. Like there's a part of me that always feels like a remedial student doing these podcasts because the type A academic part of me always feels underprepared, feels like it's not possible to be as prepared as I'd like with just a few days between episodes. I hate like the, doing the daily show, like the Hill made me so anxious because I'm like, there's too many topics and too short a period of time and everyone's talking out their ass. I can't do this. <laughs> But Jen, Jen is like the platonic ideal of what the podcast would be like if I had the time to space them out. You know how like ContraPoints only puts one episode out like every six months, but they're very well researched and like beautifully designed and perfect. That's how I feel about Jen's show. And you should try it out even just the once just to see what you think. Just everyone who's in here, all 200 and odd of you should just listen. Promise me you're going to listen to it just the once at least. You will learn so much. So kind. Thank you so much for saying that. It's an amazing endorsement. It's it's so good. Like she's doing the work. Like I just have so much. Like the the what's her name from election? The the Tracy Flick in me just loves to see someone doing the work. And for all of the people who hop on podcasts, myself included, like no shade, who are kind of bloviating all the time, to have someone who actually tried to figure it out and cites her sources. It's just so refreshing. So thank you, Jen. I'm going to stop going on and on and let you go to bed. Oh, just go on and on and on. I I also want to say Bryce and Steven, it was so nice to meet you both. And um, I hope this is the first conversation we have of many. Okay. I love, love, I love this little love. I love this little love dance. You know, total script from the last combo we had, but you know, let me I feel, I feel bad. Gabrielle, you're great. I know that you're a longtime <laughs> caller. I'm sorry. I don't mean to go. I'm taking out a day's worth of frustration of being called a State Department, not sec tool, whatever. Uh, I don't okay. mean, I didn't I mean to do to, that. I have to jump back in for just a second because I feel like. One of the reasons, because like my blood pressure pressure got up a little bit too, and I have the same issue. Like I get very irritated when people get mad at me for the things I do not say. Mm. I will take responsibility for the things that come out of my mouth and for the things I'm actually, you know, putting out there. Mm-hmm. But if I miss a detail or if I choose to not go down a path, I have my reasons for that. And so, like, I'll be I'm okay with being held accountable for my words. 
Um, and I think just like the way he came at it, it wasn't necessarily like what he said, it was how it was said. Um, and yeah, so that's just it. And I don't think you have anything to apologize for because like you said, there's a lot of facets of the situation that we can't possibly get into in one conversation. Yeah. And I, I, I get, I get that you guys don't necessarily always have the perspective of, I mean, it, it can seem like, oh, you, you have infrastructure behind you and producers and you, you, you know, if you Google my net worth, it says I'm a millionaire and why can't I figure stuff out? And like, I, I, it's obviously not true. Um, but I, I, I get why it can be, it can be, you know, difficult to keep perspective sometimes about my limitations. I want to be very honest about my limitations. I am limited, limited. It's another musical reference, hashtag wicked, but I, 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 I just am. And so I promise you, I am just making a mistake. I'm not like trying to suppress knowledge or information. And if you tell me about the mistake, I will be so happy to cure it or investigate it to see if I agree with you that it's a mistake and all of those kinds of things. But it's just, it's never like a plot. It's never a conspiracy. I promise. I don't have the bandwidth for conspiracies. Well, and I just don't see how lack of knowledge can possibly be a mistake. Like it's, I love it when people write to me and just be like, Hey, I heard you talk about this topic. Here's an extra nugget of information. I think you'd be interested. I eat that up. But then when someone's like, Oh, here's this information. Why didn't you talk about this? Do you hate us? It's like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. You know, it's a different way of approaching it. And I just feel like when it's approached in a, let's share knowledge. I'm much more receptive to it. Same. Including, including from you, uh, mon ami, Gabriel. <laughs> he's lovely. And I, I know like English being the second language and he's obviously like Nazis are bad. So, I mean, I understand being upset about that topic too. So it's like, we're all good. Totally. But, um, Here's what I have to say to Nazis. Super son of a bitch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Winner. Okay, on that note, I will leave it. Before I get off, too, Dan and Britt, you two are more than enough. You are doing the best that you can. And just keep on doing what you're doing. I appreciate both of y'all. You know, again, I like how y'all even kind of just showed how this conversation can go in terms of just like, hey, listen, you know, let's share information versus come at each other like we need to attack each other or someone has this hidden motive or Bree's making 1.5. And I didn't know that. that was the case. <laughs> um, I got to look that up and I might have a favor or two if that's really what it is. But, you know, but you two are more than enough. So I just want to go ahead and say that. Oh, thank you, love. I appreciate that. Thank you. Have a good night, Jen. And thank you, Sylvester, as always, for calling in. Yeah, uh, thanks uh, for having me. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, Jen. Bye, Jen. Uh, and we're not going to go too much longer because it's already been two and a half hours. But I and, and Bryce and Steven, feel free to drop off whatever. I don't want you to feel like you're being held hostage either. Uh, let's Happy see. to be. <laughs> I'm really, I'm enjoying this a great deal. So, Sean, you're up. Tell me your truth. You're going to have to unmute yourself by hitting the little microphone button in the bottom right-hand corner. Common mistake, really. (laughs) (laughs) Steven, it is tricky the first time you use this. Sean, are you still with us? This is a strange app. It's a little, they're still working out some of the kinks. Okay, Sean. Me too. It's because it's so delightful as much as as I just like fetched about uh, a caller. (laughs) Like I really do love engaging with people. It makes it seem a lot more real. Sean, if you go back, if you, oh, there you go. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I thought 
I was afraid I wouldn't be able to get on, but I got some points I'd like to make. Um, so I feel like this whole thing is related, it goes back to the inevitability of multipolarity. And the United States really doesn't have uh, a moral standing as hegemony. It's just we stand on graves. Um, the track record of United States in intervention is like genocide, um, famine, you know, like a bunch of really horrible stuff. And it's pretty much just to steal resources and uh, exploit labor. But I think we should be trying to march for peace for a peace summit. Um, I don't know why we keep looking at this through the framework of the State Department, but I think that we should be trying to demand a peace summit. Mm -hmm. I don't think we need to be talking about supplying weapons to another country and another failed coup attempt to destabilize some other country. I think we should be getting to the table and talking peace and accepting this new world of multipolarity like china and russia and like a lot of these other places like they're rising up against that and i think we should join them because i think it could only be a good thing for working people it's it's interesting because sometimes when we talk about you know electoralism or some some sorts of um organization or organizing efforts that seem not to go anywhere like the Black Lives Matter protest, the question that we talk about in this show is, you know, what is the leverage point? Are we going to say we're going to withhold our vote? Is that enough? Are we going to say we're going to shut down commerce with a truck brigade or, or something like that? You know, are we going to affect capital? You know, is it a capital strike? Is a student debt strike going to work because they don't really need our p- loan payments? We, we have these kinds of conversations. And I wonder how you visualize or, or how we see something like a peace summit. Is it broadly symbolic, like the George Floyd protest, or are we... No, it's a demand. I mean, we're demanding that the United States uh, go to a peace summit with European countries, with Russia, with Ukraine, with countries all over the world. Um, I think that the answer is definitely not siege warfare, which is what sanctions are. I mean, that's been a war crime for hundreds of years, for good mm-hmm. reason. I mean, oligarchs don't lose any sleep over sanctions. They're not the ones who are starving and suffering. You know, they're not the ones who are getting shelled from our weapons. Um, I think that we need to start moving towards peace, moving towards multipolarity. And I think that's the only response to this from a leftist i mean if that's not your perspective that's fine but i really do believe it's that cut and dry to be honest which i i think that goes back to our like uh like isolationist uh interventionalist discussion like we you're right like a lot of people are like what should the state department do like they have to do something but do we do do nothing like except the fact that the United States isn't going to be, you know, the global, what was it, the the, the reluctant sheriff or like mm-hmm. the, the global policeman? And mm-hmm. Like I think I think what uh, yeah, that also we're does funding, feel like we're funding and arming genocide and and uh, apartheid. 
What exactly. more ground does our State Department have? We're, we're not going to make that situation better by all no. the people. We're, we're just not. Yeah. Where, where, has that, where has that ever worked on a positive side for human rights? Never. <laughs> like I can't, I can't think of a single case. Um, I'm sure one exists. Discussing it. It's a failed strategy unless you're a capitalist who makes a lot of money selling arms, and it's a great <laughs> idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it dovetails with our with our uh, our, our conversation about like uh, what should leftists do, and like instead of like engaging in these like uh, you know debates about like who who or who isn't a tanky, like you know actively actively uh, organize a letter writing campaign to your congressman or something, or or maybe organize like a, a public information session in your community or something, because like yeah, people are trying to figure out what's going on. And people are kind of confused about America's role on the world stage and pointing out like, you know, like the contradictions of like of what you just mentioned about how we do fund these like uh, like these genocidal wars like in Yemen, how we do fund apartheid in, in, in Palestine. Uh, like now is the time to bring that to the forefront. And I, I, you're right. I think that it, that is exactly what leftists should do. It's interesting because um, Jin Psaki just said it was asked at a press conference, you know, what she thinks about the fact that 26% of only 26% of Americans actually want this. It's, it seems like in terms of popular opinion, even without a protest or a demonstration, I'm saying that's the sole point of something like that. But even without that, you know, right now, at least before the propaganda machine is in full swing, people didn't even want this to happen. And her response, here here it is. I'll just play it for you real quick. AP poll found that only 26% of Americans want the U.S. to play a major role in this this crisis. Given that this could increase costs on Americans, gas prices, other economic ripples, has the White House done enough to prepare Americans for what the U.S. will be and what impact it could be on their lives? Well, this is very important to the president personally. It's why he gave remarks, uh, delivered the remarks he did last week and why he has spoken several times to provide updates to the American people over the last couple of days. Um, Two pieces I would note that I think are very important as Americans are tuning in and learning more about uh, this this potential conflict, uh, this conflict that's underway, I guess I should say, between Russia and Ukraine. One, the president has no intention of sending uh, U.S. military or U.S. troops to fight in Ukraine. Uh, it is hard to know because I don't think it was in your poll how people assess what major involvement means. But that has not changed in terms of the president's view and his approach. Second is he is going to uh, do everything he can to reduce the impact on energy costs uh, for the American people. And that means engaging closely with partners around the world. It means considering a range of options that are all on the table uh, to reduce the market, the impact uh, on the oil markets. And that that is what would impact energy costs. But the last thing I would say is that the president in the White House, uh, you know, we make national security decisions based on what's best for our country's national security, not on the latest polling. We make national security decisions based on what's best on our country's national security, not on the latest polling. That is very like IDGAF energy from the White House with respect to people demonstrating against this thing. Yeah, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And one of the things is like, I mean, to anything that the people say. Yeah. I mean, sorry, go ahead. Was that you, Stephen or Bryce? That was just about to. 
uh, probably both of us, but I was going to say, like, I mean, a major initiative has to be democratizing foreign policy. And in, and part of that is getting the special interests out of it and tackling corruption straight on, as with any industry. I mean, you know, Punchbowl News, that newsletter is sponsored by Big Pharma. The mm. newsletters I read every morning are, are sponsored by weapons manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just one of these things. It's, it's like, how do these people fail upwards? Like the... Uh, Lloyd you know, Austin. Form. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like this really? guy like completely blows the training equipment mission in Iraq against ISIS uh, and then gets promoted. And the person in the second place for the Secretary of Defense job was like a, an architect of the surge in Afghanistan, which was a total disaster. So there needs to be, you know, some sort of accountability and getting that accountability, um, I think, involves tearing down the money structures that are keeping like really shitty people in place. Yeah. And I, and I just, when I brought up the accountability stuff. It's not that I am obviously against a peace protest, but just to say that we should probably keep in mind, given the indifference of the administration and how things like George Floyd have gone, you know, that, you know, how to, how to design it to have a maximum effect. It's just something that we should always be thinking about. That's all. I'm not talking about just a peace protest. I'm talking about a protest with a clear demand. We demand a peace summit. Um, American people are tired of not having health care and not having infrastructure and not having the things that we need because we're chasing this crazy, unrealistic dream of being the world hegemony. And we're, we're burning all of our money, spending, wasting our resources, developing weapons. I mean, demand a peace summit. It's not just. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. Perfect. I just am saying, like, are you going to shut down cap? Like, how do you get the demand? Like, what's the true, what's the leverage for the demand? That's always the question in these kinds of things. And, and that's not to say there isn't some, just that I, I, people have been asking for things for some time now <laughs> and they don't deliver, you know? So, you know, if they have to stand more to lose because we are general striking or striking something more targeted that cost them more than what they will, they stand to gain from whatever this brinkmanship is around these energy issues in Europe, then that's a win for us. You know what I mean? That, that's all I'm saying. I don't mean to say that to be discouraging in the least, Sean. I, I think when we talk about like major protests, uh, like w- when I think of major protest movements that have been successful, like, you know, like the civil rights movement, it succeeded in, you know, passing the civil rights act. It's been, Amazing. Um, uh, when I think about that, I think, how did that happen? Like, what were the conditions on the ground for that to happen? And if you look at what was going on, it was that there were a lot of small organizations around the country, mostly in the South, a lot of them, you know, organized and got together and, you know, organized a mass protest movement. So no, nothing like that infrastructure exists today right now. Like, the George Floyd protests were like, huge, massive, you know, the breaking, breaking records or whatever. But there was no real infrastructure behind them. It was mm-hmm. mostly people taking stuff on social media and then going outside and then going home. Uh, and so, and we, we've seen how that really doesn't do jack shit. Like, you know, all a leader has to do is just like say, okay, yes, say the right words and then do nothing when the next topic hits the mainstream because, you know, we have short memories and there is no sustained infrastructure 
So I, I think the question becomes, how do you build that infrastructure? And mm-hmm. well, you, you start at your community and you start by like getting together some friends who have like like minded friends and want to talk about these issues. And if you figure it, figure out ways to communicate with other groups around uh, the city and then figure out other cities to communicate with, like build it up from there. I mean, it comes up from person to person, uh, person to person organizing and, Beyond, if you don't have that, then it, it seems like a, a demand for a peace summit. I don't, I don't want to be too, dis, too discouraging or anything, but like it seems like a that sort of that sort of thing is uh, out of reach in 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 a very real sense. And so, like the in, the question of like what is to be done, like what do we do? I think you do start there, like start at your community. Like if there's like a a church gathering, like say, hey, like you see what's going on in Ukraine. Um, here's 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 what's really going on, and here's what we need to here's how we need to educate ourselves to think about this thing. And just something yeah, there, yeah. Like, but, but like you, you get you get what I'm saying. Yeah, I I I depart from common, um, you know the the common line on a lot of this stuff because I do think there's also a role. Sorry for some top down stuff. Sorry, I'm in comms. I said it. And I do think that sometimes like trying to convince somebody in your community to do something when there's no like vision for how their one little thought or feeling or tabling or whatever impacts with something bigger, it's a hard sell. sell. Like, why should I do this thing with you? Like, what is it a part of? People like to be part of something bigger. So I, I, I do take your point and I think it would be worthwhile for the left to be talking about things like a peace summit and popularizing these kinds of ideas and kind of thinking out loud about structurally how it will work at the same time as people are working on a community level. So I, I appreciate that, Sean. I think that... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I just already nexted you. I'm sorry. I had already pressed next before you started talking. Uh, I'm sorry about that, Sean. Um, Day, what's on your mind? Yes, Long time no um, here. I know. I've been listening, but if you get here one minute after it starts, you know, the queue is done. So, <laughs> But I've enjoyed all the conversations the past week, so I appreciate you continuing. Um, so I had a question related to this topic, um, given that we've seen how China's support is sort of leaning toward the side of Russia, do you all believe that we will see a repeat of these atrocities in Taiwan, but with China as the aggressor? I'm going to leave that to you two gentlemen. I don't like to predict the future. Um, I mean, my instinct is to say no, uh, that China wouldn't do that. Because you know that's seems sort of ridiculous, but I mean, I do, I have no idea. I don't know enough about Chinese politics internally to make a, an assessment whether or not they do that. Although I will say, I did see something that was kind of uh, a little disturbing in a way. Um, there was a I saw it on Twitter. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if it's how verified this is, but there was uh, like a leak about like. Uh, you know what? I don't even. I don't. I don't know if it's real. I don't. I don't want to spread you know garbage information. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna stop myself there. But uh, the the short answer is I. I have no idea. Um, I don't. I don't think so though. <laughs> you don't. Think... I know. Good. Good. Okay. Uh, from what I know, I I don't think that China's real pleased with Russia's decision because a lot of their unity in the UN and the way they voted. Uh, 
regarding, you know, intervention, the right to intervene, they really leaned on the, the principle of sovereignty very much. And I think Russia, by invading in the way it did, I mean, not to say that this is like anything new, but the way that it invaded now, like not only in Eastern Ukraine, but, you know, throughout the country now has really put China in a tough position. Um, I don't think it'll necessarily embolden them to take action on Taiwan. If it happens, I don't think it'll be strictly because of this. It, it's it's interesting to me. I mean, I, because of the unexpected nature or, or the people who seem to be in the know didn't anticipate this. It is interesting to me that there's kind of like any level of confidence. And I hear you guys both caveating. But I... I, I am I am not in the Nostradamus game, personally. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I don't know. I'm about to go order my iodine tablets, too. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. How are you feeling about it, Dave? To be honest, like, I, it should be no secret, I definitely advocate for things like a Department of Peace. I, I, I wrestle with the idea of where does my anti-war stance and and me being a pacifist begin, I guess, if I have to look at it in a negative connotation, because at the end of the day, when you are in office, you part of your responsibility is to protect the, the safety of your constituents. So I'm always torn about, okay, is it in our interest to do this? And should we only get involved when it's a direct attack? Because I think what I fear in this situation is, will it make it harder in the future for acts of diplomacy or a push for organized efforts for peace, given that, at least from what I've been able to read, I'm no expert, there were opportunities or other tactics that could have been taken to potentially de-escalate this situation. And I feel like part of the U.S.'s involvement was the escalation to the point of not saying it's not Putin's fault or, you know, whatever, but like, we somewhat helped do this instead of taking different approaches that maybe had more of a peace goal in mind. And I just get very fearful that people will become discouraged and just kind of always skirt past peace or diplomacy and go straight to aggression. Mm. That's mm-hmm. the risk of not talking about America's obligation. You know, the thing, doing that thing that gets you called a Putin's puppet, like without mm-hmm. talking about how we got here and America's contributory negligence, you're right. It does open us up to repeating those kinds of mistakes again. If you, it makes but, us feel inevitable. Yeah, but it's like, how can you have those honest, good faith conversations when the people, aka the media that is responsible for educating the public are also being funded by the people with the vested interest in perpetual war? And so I feel like that's what, just like so many problems in our country, that it's not just like one, like, oh, your, 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 your kidney needs to be removed. It's like, no, well, your kidney is messed up, but also your bladder is doing this. And then your heart is having congestive failure. And then it's just like all these different systems are in, fail- are in failure. And we need like this surgical level, pre- surgical level precision to kind of fix it. And it's like all we do is get distracted by the new shiny object. And I don't know. That, it's a really hard thing to thread, weave to thread. So I think you had a hard point. Go ahead, Bryce. No, I was going uh, to say, I think what you're talking about, um, like the whole new shiny object thing, it's like one of the big problems with or one of the big difficulties with organizing when you're living in a culture that moves at the speed of light 
it's like people people don't have the like uh i guess media infrastructure that keeps them focused on you know i guess the the big picture of things mm-hmm. and i i think we we are coming to a point where alternative media is gaining ground i i i'm not 100% certain on the numbers but it seems that more and more people are becoming like disenchanted with the the nature of the coverage of the mainstream mainstream media and the narrative that they present and so uh, if we keep developing spaces like this and, you know, a, a lot of the other, you know, media figures, if we keep develop, developing those those sorts of media networks, I guess, then th- that that goes to a long way to getting outside of that, you know, Lockheed sponsored newsletter being <laughs> the only thing or like or like a, just like the general corporate media and uh, at large like that's getting away from that i think is is really important yeah and i think that process starts by getting brianna on the view uh, <laughs> <laughs> look i will I mean, not that, argue with that, that. like I, like stuff like that like um I, I was very excited when uh i saw Mehdi hassan got a show on msnbc i was actually surprised it happened i was like wow is this shows that like uh, he's not like you know radical outside of the right. beyond the field, but I mean he does offer a perspective that's vastly different than the majority of people on MSNBC, and he he has a critique of U.S. empire. Yep, uh, people get big does. mad at Medi, and I was just I was just having this conversation yesterday with someone about you know how to you know what who who could you bring in to help to win the trust of like liberals in, in like a media context, you know. And I was making the case that someone like Mehdi is actually much better than someone like me, who all of those liberals hate anyway. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not earning any credibility. Like, but someone like Mehdi, you know, if you're just trying to, like, legitimize a space is much more effective because he does get his foot in the door. Or someone like, you know, Anand Girardas, who a lot of people, like, critique when I had him on the show and stuff, but, like, Anon gets to go on MSNBC and a lot of people trust and like Anon and he's only going to go 50% as far as I want him to go. But that 50% is meaningful when people are getting zero all the time. Mm-hmm. And people who, people who watch those channels. So Bree, I would argue it's because when you speak on like these, like I've seen you go on certain mainstream shows or like the Hill, et cetera. It's because you're so effective of rhetorically speaking or coming across like your main like your mainstream commentator but the substance of what you say pierces through their bullcrap and that's really why you're dangerous it's not that i don't think that outside of like twitter twitter trolls i feel like you would actually be very appealing to everyday as they call them wine moms or people you would actually make them think like i show people who aren't into politics all the time your videos and they're like wow i've never heard anybody say this and so I don't want you to discredit your ability to get there and do a better job than half those people you named. Well, it is very kind. It's because I am also, I, I am a wine mom. I'm a childless wine mom. <laughs> and I really secretly just want to be on The View so I can talk about the Anna Delvey story and <laughs> love it, married at first sight <laughs> no, and love is blind <laughs> and all the trash that I'm watching right now. And do all the pop culture segments. That's that's my secret shame. You're gonna be like, Brianna sold out to 
to to big e entertainment <laughs> to big bravo <laughs> i think part part of this goes back to um uh like the the discussion about like the the inner squabbling like uh, people are like oh don't listen to these people they believe this 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 like i sort of think of them broadly speaking as the left and like there's a spectrum from left that is acceptable on msnbc to left that is like streaming on twitch and and like being fucking weird um but like i think it was complimentary like they all they all bring bring something to the table to some extent and like they can learn and learn from each other and like it i'm sort of thinking like okay well if someone you brought in told you something and then you bring it up with like with like Medi or something, and then he bring he says it on MSNBC. Like that sort of pipeline, uh, I, th- I think that's a that's a healthier way of looking at it than sort of the silos that we do now. With like, oh no, Sam Cedar's a, a a fucking you know like corporate corporate stooge or whatever. He what? Well, like no, nah, like okay, Sam Cedar I, gets I on will, MSNBC. Like yeah, I will always. In fact, the one and only time I got to go on. Um, Chris Hayes show. It was back when I was at the intercept when I got more media opportunities than when I was the national press secretary for Bernie Sanders, but that's another story. Uh, <laughs> it was with Sam Cedar. And um, I will always really appreciate him for introducing me. I was watching his show when I learned about the concept of force the vote, which he was supportive of at the time. So kudos to him for that. I think that perhaps <laughs> this is a good place for us to stop because we are about at the three hour mark and day it's always a pleasure to talk to you i want to give both of you gentlemen um bryce and steven an opportunity to let people know where to find you and your work and bryce don't forget to tell people where to find the article that brought us together here today it's it's content full and a really great read right um yeah, uh, I'm Bryce Green, and you can find me on Twitter at the Green BJ. It's my the same username here. Um, I contribute. I'm trying to contribute, you know, some more to Fair Media Watch. It's a media watchdog. They're excellent, um, and they have excellent pieces there. You should check it out. My article is there. Um, you can find it under my uh, under my author name. And uh, I, I also just want to reinforce how good of a fucking show Congressional Dish is. Yeah, like. I yeah, I can't recommend it up. And when, when she says that she has show notes, like she doesn't just mean like, oh, she links to like, two like four articles. articles. No, no. <laughs> no, no. Like there are dozen, dozens of articles. Like every single claim she makes is like backed up by deep research. She has excerpts from congressional transcripts. Yes. She has like links to C-SPAN, links to the bills, like. It, it's it's the real deal. Can't, it's can't like reporting. It. It, it, so much it's of what reporting. we do on, on YouTube is like opinion journalism, but this this is re- re- reporting. It's research. Like she's one of the only people who like actually cover Congress in the way that Congress ought to be covered. Like when something happens, go back through the congressional record, go back through C-SPAN, see what the people are saying, yeah. and then incorporate that into your worldview. Um, yeah. In, in fact, one I was looking for. Uh, an art of uh, some sort of article that talked about the IMF role in the current Yemen crisis. Mm. And I couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. The only place I had even caught wind of that was on her show. And so I linked that in, in my article, like go, go through her back catalog. It's, 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 it's amazing. amazing. It's, 
It's like, I even got SNL joke about not reading. <laughs> I'm, I'm post reading in a post reading frame of mind, but this feels, it feels nutritious. Like when I'm consuming these episodes as though I am reading a book. Yeah. Which is hard for me these days. Um, and, and of course I love Steven's work. Like definitely. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steven, you're up. What were the questions I was supposed to answer? Where can people find you in your work? Uh, I was hoping when you were giving Jen the sign off, you said, uh, how can people support you? And if you asked me that question, I would say emotionally. And I was hoping <laughs> you'd play the laugh track. <laughs> Don't despair. Don't despair. <laughs> also, also. Uh, I, I do have a non-joke, and it was, I thought I was on camera for the first hour of this thing. Oh, that's Wait. hilarious. <laughs> Where did you think the video was going? I don't know. I was afraid because I had it set up. So I was like, I didn't sit back. Like they're kind of just blinking here. It's like small circles. But but anyway, guys, thanks for thanks for tuning in. Always good to join you, uh, Brianna Bryce. Nice to meet you. Um, and great article, by the way. I was uh, thank you. Thank I don't think you. I complimented that earlier, but uh, it's good to know that I can follow. Uh, you know, a talented person's work, another one. Uh, so uh, you can find me on Twitter at Steven Semler. You can um, uh, follow my newsletter that I run on Substack. Uh, it doesn't require a lot of reading. I try to uh, integrate pictures, uh, charts, usually, uh, a lot of charts, which I'm starting to call NFTs, by the way. So rich people start buying them. It hasn't worked <laughs> out, though. And I run a. You, you I, absolutely I a, have to sell one. You absolutely have to. <laughs> I'll, you know, we can talk offline about that get a little uh, get a little thing going but I think uh, oh yeah last thing I, I, I co-founded a think tank it's called Spry Security Policy Reform Institute you can find us on Twitter uh, at at security underscore reform uh, still in the startup phase still trying to um, get our shit together I guess find our identity but uh, broadly we're trying to align US foreign policy with working class interests um, and I think that's it that's like the whole game. So, I mean, people, please do follow his work. Please do. He's been on the podcast twice before. Uh, the, the last time you were on, Stephen, that video did very well. It was our kind of post-holiday catch-up and all of the shenanigans that had gone down with Build Back Better. And people really responded, I think, to the <laughs> bleak, angry tone that we struck <laughs> on that episode. Well, and I as denied a- the existence of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. <laughs> <laughs> And our other episode, uh, I think it was, was with Shahid Buttar. I don't know if it was just you two, if there was a third, post-Afghanistan no, uh, withdrawal. Graham, Graham Smith. Oh, right, right, right. He was great. And we had yeah. this – we really got in. We didn't get into it as much tonight, but into the, phys- the philosophical conversation about what does a left, quote-unquote, intervention look like? What is What does that standard start to look like? Um, yeah, so we still don't really know. We know we have to leverage, uh, you know, class solidarity across borders, but we still, I don't know if it's the lack of infrastructure we have, or we just, you know, haven't thought of ideas or they're out there and we haven't heard of them. So still not got a lot of thinking to do on that one. Well, there's a lot of Colin, Collins in our future. If you ever want to publicly ruminate uh, in detail, if someone wants to have a, if you guys want to join us for a really pedantic conversation about how to leverage international solidarity uh worker solidarity into a peace movement uh our friend i'm sorry 
That sounds amazing. <laughs> I mean, like we got all the Colin time in the world. Colin is free. Like <laughs> there's no recording schedule. I mean, we can always do extra episodes. Like I did that extra bonus one on, on over the weekend uh, because people had so many thoughts and feelings about the candidate live stream we did last week. So always open to that. Thank you all so much. Thank you all for being here. Don't forget to like follow the show so that you get an alert. When I do a stream, I tend not to schedule them to the day of. The call-in people keep trying to push me to be more organized than that. I'm working on it. Also, I know people had thoughts and feelings about the Matt Dust interview, but you should still go and like it and watch it on YouTube because I do think it's important to get people who are in positions of power on the record so that we can know what to expect when we're in these positions again and be able to push back uh, thoughtfully against them. Um, I feel like there's something else I was supposed to say, but I don't remember what it is. So just enjoy this uh, outro, an excellent peace song from the best album in the history of albums. You know him. You love him. It's Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life. And as always, keep the faith. Good morning, friend. Is your friendly announcer? I have serious news to pass on to everybody. What I'm about to say couldn't mean the world's disaster, could change your joy and laughter to tears. And pain. It's that love in need of love today. Don't delay, send yours in right away. Hey, for now, waking me. Before it's gone too
I know you guys are still here because the song rocks and you're jamming, but it's a long outro, so I'm going to forget it out. Thanks for listening and to keep the faith.